Hello, everyone. Welcome to the MJ Cast. You have joined us for episode 71. Today, I am going to be joined by co host Jamin Bull, of course. We've also got author of the MJ 101 series, Bad. Andy Healy, and for the first time, we are joined by Chris Lacey. So enjoy the show, episode 71 of the MJ Cast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. I love you! <laughs> I love my fans. Just simply Michael Jackson. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Q, how are you? Very well. Thank you, Jamin. I think this is going to be a really fun and a great episode. So thank you very much. I'm excited. And I think this is the second we've done in a, in uh, with Andy now around his 101 books. Or is it the third? Yeah, we... No, no. Oh, we did Dangerous. And I think, did we do the performances? Ugh. I can't remember, that's a good actually. Thing that, that's a good thing that we're losing count. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Well, Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be back. And congratulations on the release of your new Bad 30 MJ101 book. Yes, number eight in the series. So it's uh, it's getting up there. Not what, Wow. Not where I thought I would be, but uh, it's good. It's uh, And uh, a few more in the uh, in the pipeline that we'll talk about much later. Well, I'm glad you're not just rushing them out. Like you do really take your time with these. And if you're not 100% happy with it, you don't put it out yet. And and I like that because I think it pays off. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, especially with this one, it was uh, originally slated to kind of coincide with the with the 30th anniversary on um, August 31st, but I wasn't happy with uh, where it was at at that time. So I thought I'd hold off. And then I realized that November 13 was when I first saw Michael on the bad tour in Melbourne. And so I thought, well, that'll be a nice kind of anniversary to to celebrate. So that's when it uh, dropped. Ah, that worked out well. It was actually my 21st anniversary just this week of seeing Michael in Perth on the uh, opening night of the history tour at the Burswood Dome here in Perth. Very cool. How time flies. But let's let's introduce someone that has not actually been with us on the MJ cast before. We, we've spoken to him many times across social media. We've read articles. We've had some great discussions with him. We'd like to welcome to the show for the first time, Mr. Chris Lacey. Hey, guys. How are you? We are great. Thank you so much for joining us. It's awesome to speak with you. It's likewise, it's an absolute honor to be a part of the podcast. I've been a longtime listener, and I'm I'm ready to do this. Let's go. Let's go. So, firstly, where whereabouts are you? I know Andy, you're in LA. That's right. You've got a sunny day over there. Yep. Excellent. And Chris, where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Columbia, South Carolina. It's uh, 7:27 in the evening, and um, yeah, it, it's uh, nighttime here. So I'm 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 just I'm I'm just so excited right now. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm kind of stumbling <laughs> over my words. I'm just excited to be a part of this, man. I really am. Also, and you're driving? 
Yes, yes, I am driving home right now, uh, and and here pretty soon I will be in front of uh, in front of my computer, and we and we can talk a little bit more uh, about bad and and other things that uh, revolving around the era. So, all right, well, speak clearly, speak loudly, but most importantly, concentrate on the road. Okay, man. Definitely will. <laughs> definitely will. Awesome. I haven't been to South Carolina. I have been to Raleigh in North Carolina. We did a really quick day trip there to visit some friends. And I'll always remember, it, other than it being quite beautiful, and that's where Krispy Kreme donuts were invented. I had an yep. awesome steak sandwich at this little family just run restaurant on, on in the main street area. And it was so good. It was basic as, and it was just such a good sandwich. There you go. No, no, nothing's going to be Southern cooking, I can tell you that. Yeah, Chris, you, you know that restaurant, don't you, Chris? <laughs> say, say, say again? I said you know that restaurant, right? <laughs> it, it's, it's actually only a couple hours away from where I live, so I am familiar with it, actually. <laughs> How funny. Awesome. So today we're going to be talking about uh, a number of things. We're going to be talking about the the new book that you've just put out for free. Thank you so much, Andy, which is about the Bad album and it is Bad 30th anniversary this year. We're going to probably talk about the, the Bad World Tour and we're going to talk about uh, some stuff that Chris has been writing as well. First, though, Andy, could you tell us a little bit about your free digital book series, the MJ101 series, and uh, and then after that, maybe also your involvement on Facebook in the group, the MJ Archives? Sure, yeah. Uh, so I started the uh, MJ101 series with uh, what I consider the actual book, which was the MJ101 Greatest Songs where I kind of reviewed and critiqued Michael's 101 best and greatest songs, some contentious omissions for some, um, but it was just a way to kind of, you know, draw the focus back onto to Michael's art. And then from there, I released a series of supplements on his 20 greatest performances, his 20 greatest short films, 20 greatest remixes, and then album editions for Off the Wall, History, Dangerous, and Now Bad. Awesome. Great collection. Yeah. So uh, it's just, you know, it's just one fan's point of view, hoping to uh, to spark discussion and, and debate about the music again, which uh, for a long time wasn't necessarily the central focus of, of the world of Michael. So... Well, just this week, I sat down. I uh, was in a hotel on a on an overnight for work. I sat down with the the album playing on my iPad, and I opened up the iBook, which is just a beautiful, beautiful laid out book with incredible bad era images right throughout. I think some of my favorites are the um, Annie Leibovitz shoot. Though those images are just so powerful yeah, and amazing. amazing shots. Oh, some of my favorite. Probably, I think I've listed them as my favorite shots ever. And just listening to the tracks as I went through the book, it's such a perfect fit. Like the chapters are such a great length, and you really can hear what you're talking about in each little chapter. And it's such a great way to read it is by just listening to the album track by track. And that's something I have not had time to do or sat down and done for a long time is actually take an album as a whole 
and enjoy it as the full package. Everything now is about, you know, everything's on shuffle or uh, just, you know, hear a song on the radio, it's just a single or a greatest hits collection. And having it in the context of the whole package album where all the songs are in the correct order, they all lead into each other. It was such a great experience and something I think that we miss out on a lot these days. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, one of the the way that I try to write is try to write to a length of the actual tracks so that people can sort of get that experience of, of reading along while the music's playing in the background. And, you know, if I talk about the way that Michael hits a certain note or, or layers vocals or, you know, um, whether it's Jimmy Smith's kind of Hammond organ solo, it kind of tries to, to hit at the point when... Uh, when you hear it, that that it's been discussed, and yeah, as you say, we we all kind of know the tracks from from most of Michael's catalogue, but we hear them now either on compilations or, as you say, when we've got our iPods on shuffle or whatever, and uh, we're, we're not necessarily sitting down and listening to the albums as they were created. So it's uh, it's great that that people are embracing the approach that I've taken and and sitting down and listening to to the album in its entirety and, and reading along. Yeah, yeah. They're phenomenal. You know, I think that I've read all of them and love them. Um, I, I want to know from you, Andy, like what kind of um, requests do you get? Do you get a lot of like your readers contacting you and saying, oh, I want you to do, you know, this sort of topic in the future or cover this era? What, what are your most common, I guess I should put it, requests? Um, most uh, people have kind of asked why I haven't tackled Invincible yet. And that's kind of been more just because it's waiting for anniversaries and, and things like that. I did, I think it was on the MJ cast, actually, I talked about, I've been working on a lyrics one for a while and people keep asking when that's coming out. Uh, Thriller's an obvious one and that will be coming out very shortly. Actually getting people who are fans of Michael, you know, I've had people kind of email me saying, will you do one for Prince or will you do one for Janet or will you do one for the Jacksons? And I've got ones for Janet and ones for the Jacksons. I've kind of been working on and off uh, for the last couple of months at least. And Prince, I would love to do, but I think there's probably um, more qualified people in the Prince world to, to do something that's that digs into his stuff and... Um, I don't know, maybe one day, but I think I'll, I'll stick with uh, with Michael and maybe broaden out with the Jacksons and Janet in time. Very cool. That thrills thrills me to hear this. Yeah. Oh, my God. Can't <laughs> <wait>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before we head over to Chris to, to learn a bit more about him, uh, tell us about the MJ Archives. Sure. Well, the MJ Archives, I think, uh, has been around for about 10 years now. Um, it's a Facebook group that was set up by Chris Cadman, who most people probably know as uh, author of the For the Records and the, uh, the Maestro series. It's basically a place where we discuss um, Michael's art, Michael's music. We talk about Michael's short films, his performances, everything that has to do with, you know, the gifts that Michael gave us from, a, from an artistic point of view. There's always great discussions going on, always great insights, and we've we've got a, a good group of people who are passionate about Michael's music and and continue to bring new insights and and new uh, expressions of his work to to the discussions. So um, yeah. it's a great place to be, and uh, it, it's one of the only few places. Actually, it's the only Michael Jackson forum, I guess, uh, that I've ever actually been a part of. Most of the time, I was on the Prince Org. 
to talk Michael because I felt it was a better place to actually have the discussions that I was most interested in. Yeah. The archives is particularly good because it's one of the only places I'm a part of online where Michael Jackson collaborators are right there interacting with Michael Jackson fans. So there might be a topic that comes up, you know, and it's fans and collaborators discussing together the art. It's incredible. It's a very unique uh, phenomenon in the MJ world and it's a great place to be a part of. Yeah, Chris has really fostered that that relationship with people like Michael Prince and um, Brad Sundberg and John Barnes and, and a whole lot of collaborators who have come in to, to kind of, you know, give us their points of view on things and help correct us and in other places. And, uh, it, yeah, it's a really great collaborative place to, to be a part of. Yeah. Speaking of corrections, just wanted to make a little correction about something that was mentioned in our episode 69, the Charles Thompson Q&A. He sort of alluded to that you can't speak about the Casio tracks over on the archives and that of course, is not true at all and not accurate at all. There's yeah, not true. come up in not true, and it has come up in many discussions. You know, Chris, back when the tracks were released, was was very vocal about how they, what, how he thought about them. They weren't Michael Jackson authentic tracks. So it is that was a mistake that I wanted to correct from our episode sixty nine. So thank you for letting me do that. Cool. Yeah, I wasn't a member of the archives way back when it started and especially in 2010 when those songs were coming out, but I've discussed them at length in the past few years and have never been banned or anything like that on there. So, yeah, I think it's important we make that little correction. Cool, appreciate it. There's also a, a sort of a sister page to the archives. It's uh, Michael Jackson's uh, fans for the record. Is that correct? Yeah, so that uh, so Chris kind of set that up to broaden the scope of of um, discussion. So we try to keep stuff about the music and about the short films and and concerts and performances. But uh, Chris kind of knew that people wanted to to talk about other areas within Michael's world. So uh, that's kind of a, a broader um, scope, I guess, of of focus with the um, with the for the record fans for the record page. And that's, I think, maybe been around for just the past six months. But, uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's gaming uh, a, a lot of momentum as well, which is great to see. So, Mr. Chris Lacey, could you tell us about yourself? And uh, I would love to hear about albumism and how you got involved with that and what you've written for that. And then I'm going to ask you a few other things after that as well. Okay, Sure. Uh, I've, I've been a, a lifelong Michael Jackson supporter ever since I was a kid. Uh, it really started with my uh, passion for dancing. Since I grew up a, a Navy brat, um, I moved around a lot, so I didn't have a chance to really root myself in a dance studio. Um, so I would just spend time in my room watching you know, the, the Michael Jackson compilations that were on VHS at the time and, and just constantly re-watch it until I felt that I perfected uh, the moves. So, and then as I got older, Going into 12, 13 years old, um, that's when I started battling with uh, vitiligo. So uh, at the time, I, of course, no one else in my family had ever been you know, uh, exposed to that. Um, so then I started doing more research on it. And then, of course, that's when Michael came to mind. And I said, well, OK, well, that, that's another uh, element of, of Michael where I feel like I can connect to him in that way because he's obviously gone through this. And so perhaps I can learn something from him on how he's uh, gone about handling it. Um, and then as I got into my, uh, twenties, that's when I really started to get into creative writing. Um, I've always been a strong English student 
And um, and whenever I would do research on uh, on Michael, because keep in mind, when when I got into my twenties, that was shortly after Michael had passed, and um, I just saw a bunch of garbage, honestly, about him and and about his music. So I would read, thinking I was going to learn something about the music, but it didn't pertain to the music at all. So I said to myself, what can I do to change that narrative and actually shift the focus to his art instead of talking about his uh, you know, about the, the tabloid fodder that, that was out there. So that's what got me on to albumism. I found out about it through a friend who, uh, I ha I've had, you know, all kinds of conversations with about Michael's music. And he said, well, Hey, um, would you like to join albumism? I said, I said, sure. And, uh, you know, they reached out to me and, you know, and then one of the, the, the second piece that I ever did for albumism was for dangerous 25. And um, I read it recently, and, and of course, the perfectionist in me wishes that I could go back and change some things. But, um, but I would say that uh, what I wrote for Bad this year is probably one of the uh, most. Uh, uh, I, I would probably say I'm the most proud of that one uh, because of how much I love the album, but also being able to strike a balance between talking about the music and then trying to get my my reader into as if they were in the studio with him and trying to understand why did Michael make the song this way? Who who was involved in the creative process? Um, you know, what kind of impact uh, did his short films from that era, you know, have on, on his career then and how has it impacted artists today? And just the, the responses that I got from that was just overwhelmingly positive. And, uh, and, and of course, Andy, I consulted with him uh, before I turned it in. And, and he said, yeah, it, pretty much he, he said that it was good. So I, I knew that it was ready once I got Andy's uh, uh, approval on that. No, I was very tempted just to copy and paste it and quickly put an article out myself. It was that good. <laughs> <laughs> they are great. And we'll make sure there's links to both of those articles uh, and your recent article as well, Andy, uh, in our show notes. So please head over to the show notes and read these terrific articles. Thank you so much for writing those. I'm glad you spoke about your dancing as well there, Chris, because it was only yesterday that I saw a video of you dancing for the first time. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> hello, this guy can really move. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it, it, it went up yesterday and I, was, I wasn't even prepared for how much feedback that I would get. I've never had uh, a lot of hits on my videos, I, I guess, just because one, I don't put very many out just because I'm very, very self-critical. But um, I, I think I checked uh, last night. It, it's already exceeded a thousand views in the first day. So I'm just truly humbled that people enjoy it. And more importantly, like they, they get a chance to hear, you know, Michael's music still being played. You know, so I, I think that that's important to just continue to keep his legacy alive. And that's what I want to do, not only through his music, but also through my dancing. Because, I mean, he's just, we already know he's, the, the goat when it comes to you know, comes to dancing. So he uh, it, it just it was a great way for me to pay homage to him um, because of all the things that he's done uh, on me uh, in my life as a person and as a performer. So just for um, older listeners out there, I only learnt this year what GOAT stands for. It's greatest <laughs> of all time. I just want to clarify that for anyone that might know what that means because I sure didn't at the start of this year. So that there we go. But um, and, and you plan on doing a, a dance video for release early next year as a tribute as well. Correct. Correct. Yes. Um, I'm definitely digging into my bag and trying to channel my inner MJ. So uh, in February of 2018, 
Uh, the tentative date right now is Valentine's Day. Um, I plan on releasing a six to seven minute short film uh, for PYT Pretty Young Thing. Um, it's going to involve acting. It's going to have tons of dancing in there. And uh, it's going to have, uh, it's just going to be, I, I, I want it to be basically j just an extension of something that Michael would do. Now, obviously, I know I, I don't have the budget or the resources that he has, but I want that charm and I want that spirit to be there. And I think that when people see it, they're going to feel that. Now, before I finish asking just a couple of little questions about yourself and things that you've been working on, sure. you mentioned something just a few minutes ago that you have vitiligo. Correct. So can I ask about how as a black man, that mm -hmm. affects your ethnic identity, especially as a young man that was, you know, going through everything that a young guy goes through anyway. Right. So how, how did that affect you and what did that do for the way you think about yourself? Yeah, um, it, it definitely impacted me as a 12 and 13 year old. I was already kind of uh, mentally fragile, I guess you could say. I, I didn't have uh, the utmost confidence in myself. So when I started battling with vitiligo, some of the people that I went to school with who I thought were my friends, I quickly realized that it's a shame how, you know, when some when someone sees something that's uh, different, then they tend to attack it because they're not familiar with it. So um, I heard some of the same things that Michael's heard, you know, when, when, when he was alive. Um, I've had, and one of them being that I was ashamed of my African heritage and it, it just crushed me because I, I was dealing with a skin condition that I had no idea how to deal with and neither, neither did anyone else in my family. So to come home every day, pretty much in tears, and, and I would kind of beg my family, please don't let me go back to school tomorrow because I don't want to have to deal with this every day. But, you know, I, I learned to develop thick skin. And as I got older, you know, I started to develop a relationship with God and it really helped me, you know, be able to find some some type of closure with the, the verbal abuse that I kind of went through as a kid. And um, as a result, I've been able to mentor other kids that were my, that, you know, that were my age at that time. And some, some of them have battled with vitiligo, so I'm able to connect with them very quick. But there are other kids that are dealing with, you know, uh, fatherlessness like, like I have, and, you know, are just, you know, living in, uh, you know, in poverty and, you know, these different scenarios. So I, I try to, you know, allow, you know, what God has done in my life to be a, a positive light on them. But to bring it back to uh, vitiligo now as an adult, um, I do still struggle with it. You know, it, uh, it's, um, it, 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 you know, whenever you wake up in the morning and, you know, you look in the mirror, you're brushing your teeth or whatever, and then you, all of a sudden you see, you know, an area of your skin that's usually pretty dark. And now all of a sudden it's starting to look light and you're like, oh boy, here we go again, you know? So it, it, it just, it's just a very random situation. And, and I have some treatment that does handle it, uh, but so, you know, sometimes it could be really quick. Other times it could just take a really long time to kind of cover uh, that patch up, you know, naturally. So it, it's something that I, I continue to, uh, to deal with, but you know, I, I know that my vitiligo skin condition does not define me as a person. It's uh, opened up a lot of doors for me to be able to mentor, as I mentioned earlier. So I, I look at it as a blessing in disguise. I've got a question as well about vitiligo, if that's okay. Sure. Just, just before we get into bad, and I know, I know we're all like real hungry to get into bad, and we will. Of course, yeah. I was just thinking while you were talking there, like, I mean, it's... See, as a, a white guy, when I try to explain to people 
especially other white Australians around Michael Jackson's skin condition and what he had to deal with in his life. I mean, more often than not, because I'm a school teacher, kids in the classroom, whenever we start talking about Michael Jackson, usually the number one question they always ask is, how come he turned white? Mm-hmm. That's always what I get hit with. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always go down the path of explaining about vitiligo, how the condition works, and that he never turned white. He was always a proud black man. Um, it's just right. his skin became lighter over time. So mm-hmm. how, when you have those conversations with people, because surely I'm, I'm guessing people ask you the same thing as a, as a Michael Jackson fan, like right. are you able to have a deeper conversation with them based on the fact that you also suffer vitiligo? Uh, yeah. Um, and, and I think that because of the people that I know, um, cause I mean, obviously who, who doesn't know about Michael Jackson, but you know, whenever I'm able to tell them that, Hey, you know, when, when Michael, you know, had the interview with Oprah back in 93, that was his first time really going public about it. So whenever I'm able to kind of, you know, provide that context and, and give them insight on what I've dealt with, they're like, okay, you know, obviously like Michael didn't bleach his skin. Like, you know, the tabloid said, you know, this is a true skin condition that he had no control over, you know, so he was just doing the best he could to kind of compensate for it. So, so yeah, I've been able to have some really good conversations with people that just aren't familiar with it. And then I've had, you know, on, on a rare occasion, I'll, I'll have someone, you know, be ignorant and, you know, kind of, you know, go the negative route and try to, you know, paint it as though I'm you know ashamed of my skin color and, because uh, I'm because I'm biracial and you know, I'm half black half white, so I've had some people say, "Oh, well, you just value your white side more than you do your black side." I'm like, that couldn't be any further from the truth. But you know, like I said, it's on rare occasion I'll come across ignorant people like that. But the vast majority are very, very understanding and empathetic. Um, wh- whenever uh, I'm able to give them that context and kind of bring it back into what Michael dealt with uh, throughout his adult life. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing those answers that's really appreciated all right i think it's time for us to get into our main discussion topic of the episode which is all about bad we're going to reflect back on on bad the album the tour the videos we're just going to talk about the whole era today uh before we get into some of those specifics i think um we need to set the scene by us talking about our specific memories around the bad era now i'm not going to have a lot to contribute to this one because i was a grand total of one year old when bad came out so uh, i don't remember (laughs) too much about that era other than that i do actually have one one memory um and it was when I was, it's kind of abstract, but Q, you know, and Andy, you probably know as well, you know, the, the theme park Dreamworld on the Gold Coast? Yes. Yeah. Well, I went to Dreamworld when I was really young and it would have to, it was in the, I think the, um, the early nineties. And I have this memory. We actually have a video recording of it. We were floating down the river at Dreamworld at one of the attractions. We were on a boat. And um, you sort of look out onto the bank and they've got these actors dressed as cowboys doing these um, sort of uh, different dance routines and jokes and things like that. And um, at one point in the routine, the guy grabs his crotch and he yells out, I'm bad, and he shoots a gun into the air. And at the, at the time, I had, I had no idea what, you know, that that was connected to Michael Jackson or anything like that. But I just remember thinking, wow, that's kind of, something's going on, that's kind of cool. Um, and it was only a little while later when I looked back at that home video that I remembered that that had happened and I connected it as an MJ fan to obviously being bad. And, and at that time, how, how 
you know, it sort of, I guess that video and that song really had entered into pop culture world so much that, you know, people on the, on the streets and everywhere must have been talking about it. So, I mean, I'm lucky to be talking to you guys because you all were at an age, I guess. Chris, I don't know how old you are, but I know Andy and Q, you were at an age where you really would have been able to appreciate it um, as it was coming out. So how about we start with Andy um, tell us about your memories around Bad. When did you get it? What was the era like to you as you were growing up? Sure. Um, you know, there was obviously the anticipation kept building and building with, I think it was originally meant to come out December of 86 and then got pushed back. But uh, actually, that can't be correct because the recording wasn't until January. Anyway, the, the rumours were that it was meant to be coming out in, in December and I just remember when it finally was announced that it was going to uh, going to be released, uh, heading to my local record store, doing the old pre-order um, to make sure that I got my copy the day it came out. And, um, you know, obviously we'd heard I Just Can't Stop Loving You uh, get kind of radio airplay. I can remember setting my cassette tape to, to record the radio when it was when it was uh, being played for the first time so that I could just listen to it over and over and over and, and dissect it. But when the album came out, there was just that excitement of, you know, what was Michael going to be doing? Obviously, we'd heard the Victory album and, and the couple of tracks that he was on there. But, you know, was this going to be another repeat of Thriller? Was there, you know, was he moving on as, a, as an artist? And I just remember the promotion for it. Everybody who I knew um, watched the the bad uh, short film when it was um, broadcast on TV. And uh, then the next day at school, that was kind of like the topic of conversation. But just just being able to to get the album, really knowing nothing of what to expect apart from, as I say, I just can't stop loving you and bad, dropping the needle on on it and uh, just being taken away to to the great uh, sounds and, and songs that, that were contained in it was just an amazing experience. And I think I probably listened to the album about three or four times that night when I got it and then uh, for fairly regularly afterwards. That's so cool. I don't remember a lot of the, um, the any promo. I don't remember any talk of the tour. And I was in uh, country Queensland when he would have toured Brisbane for the tour. I, I do have vague memories of some of the videos, but not that I sat and watched and was completely, you know, sucked into them. I have memories of when Moonwalker came out that we used to rent that from the video store, but I was also at the same time renting Janet Jackson's Control video cassette with all of the control film clips, which was really cool for me at the time. But I do remember having bad on cassette. It was probably maybe my third cassette that I owned. And I used to listen to it in my Walkman when I was, my sister was at netball practice and I would then walk from the, the, like the sports oval up to the shops and I would listen to the cassettes and my Walkman as I was walking. And that was really cool. And I think as a whole at the time, the album, I just remember it was so cinematic and looking back on it now, it's got that retro edge where it's so gloriously eighties. And I love that because I was a kid of the eighties and the nineties. So just, I can revel in that glorious eighties sound and, 
for the album, it was just like some of Michael and his production team's finest work. And then, of course, out of that came those iconic videos, which sort of supplant our memories of what we first thought of the songs. Yeah, one of the, I mean, you bring up Moonwalker and I, I can remember actually going to, it was Boxing Day uh, that it got its cinema release in Australia. And um, I can remember going to the, to the cinemas in Russell Street in Melbourne to see it. And again, just, you didn't know what to expect. And that was part of the joy of, of that era was there wasn't, there weren't leaks. You know, you couldn't, when the tour happened, you might get a um, you know articles coming out of Japan about the the world tour, but you couldn't go on YouTube. You couldn't watch the show before you actually experienced it. So a lot of it was completely fresh, completely new, all firsthand experiences that you know as as time went on, and and especially in today, you can you know you want to see any show, you can basically just pull it up. But you, there was that sense of anticipation, that sense of what is it going to be like from everything, from from the album dropping to each new single being released. What would be the next single? What's going to be the the short film for it? What's the tour going to be like? What's Moonwalker going to be like? There was just constantly what's the Grammy performance going to be like? There was just constant, constant, constant anticipation and build and excitement surrounding the project that really kind of, you know, possibly even surpassed Thriller in terms of the excitement of, of everything that was happening because there was the tour to, to accentuate that on a global scale rather than just the victory tour for the US. That's a great summation, Andy. Um, Chris, what about you? What are your memories around the Bad era and your first experiences with the Bad album? So uh, I'm the baby of the group. I didn't enter the picture until 1990. So I was, uh, I was exposed to the Bad era per se, um, whenever I watched the uh, the montage of the Bucharest uh, tour uh, during the Dangerous Era, and um, and whenever they did the, the the music video montage, and I saw him do uh, the way he made me feel at the '88 Grammys, and it transitioned over to Smooth Criminal, and then another part of me, and so on and so forth. I remember just it, Smooth Criminal alone was enough to make my jaw drop as a, as a three year old. And then when I got, uh, let's see, when I was uh, 11 years old, that's when they did the 2001 reissues of his uh, first four, uh, uh, well, yeah, yeah, Off the Wall, Thriller, Bad and Dangerous. Uh, That's when I really sat down with the record and and, uh, just absorbed every last bit of it. Um, And then shortly after that, that's when I got Moonwalker on VHS. And still to this day, it, it, it still is my favorite era because of, uh, just where he was creatively, you know, from his music to his fashion choices to uh, the energy that he brought on tour. You know, j- just there was just so many things going on at that time. I think that from 87 to 89, he was practically untouchable, apart from Prince. What should I get Bill for Christmas? I've looked everywhere. How about something really exciting? Michael Jackson. You've seen Bill's moonwalk. (laughs) Michael Jackson's bad. The perfect gift for someone special. Hey, this is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ cast. We're going to get into a discussion around each of the songs on the album. 
uh, from the start of the album right to the finish, beginning with the title track, Bad. Uh, we're going to keep it exactly like um, the flow of Andy's book. We're going to do a track-by-track discussion, but we've got to keep it quick. Otherwise, we could be here for about four hours. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's, um, <laughs> so let's kick things off by chatting about the title track, Bad. So I wanted to sort of use Andy's book as a basis of this discussion. So for each track, I'm just going to pick a little paragraph uh, out of the, the small chapter and uh, then we'll, we'll see where the discussion goes after that. So for the first track and uh, opening chapter of the book about bad, Andy's written against bristling accents that bubble and brew under a climbing baseline, this is Michael's response to the speculation about whether or not he could equal or even top the success of Thriller. With Bad, Michael throws down the lyrical gauntlet when he declares, and the whole world has to answer right now, it isn't an overstatement, it's a declaration of funk. That line alone reflects the challenge and pressures of having to prove himself once more and he more than rises to the occasion. Andy, thoughts on the song Bad? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, as you uh, brilliantly surmised there. Um, <laughs> oh, that was your, your words, man. That yeah. was your words. Um, yeah, look, Bad was, um, you know, Michael kind of stepping up and, and answering the critics that were questioning his blackness, that were questioning how funky this album was going to be, was questioning whether he was going to uh, chase a white audience more. And it is. I mean, if you look at the lyrics, it's kind of, you know, Michael refuting all of that and saying, you know, I'm bad. I've still got it. I'm I'm still the person who you're all going to watch. I'm still the person who musically you're all going to follow. And yeah, and the whole world has to answer right now just to tell you once again, just to remind you why I'm here, why I'm held in such high regard and why this album isn't, you know, just going to be a, a, it's not just a a follow up to Thriller. This is going to be a standalone piece that will be judged and revered for, for time to come. Yeah. And it certainly had a massive impact. I mean, that song, I remember I think I even remember the first time I've ever I ever heard it and I was just blown away by the layering of all the different instrumentation and vocals and just how it builds right to the end of the song. It just keeps getting more and more dense uh, with, with layers of instruments. An incredible opening track and it's sort of a trend that he continued from the thriller, well, really from Off the Wall onwards, of having that huge dance number to start the, song, uh, the, the album off. I love the layering as well. I, I adore the organ and the wow, wow in the background, so cool. The Which is claps. actually Michael. That's actually yeah. Michael. There like was so much experimentation think, with sound. Like my, most people think that the, the wow-wow is like a wah-wah guitar, but it's been confirmed by people in the studio. That was actually Michael, his voice, being uh, fed through the synclavia and, and modulated and stuff. But basically he was trying to, as much as he could, create the sounds that would end up on, on the track. And, and then, of course, the claps, you know, those huge hands of his the claps just like right through and uh, in the background there's that duka, 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 that just keeps the pace and just keeps like the energy up and it's so cool and of course it's like synth heaven like 80s synth heaven now in retrospect but at the time it was you know that was the sound i love it how about you chris 
Yeah, um, I, I, everything you guys said, I absolutely agree with 100%. And to dovetail off of that, I, I believe that this is really Michael's uh, version or his interpretation of hip-hop. Um, if you listen to the way that his, uh, his he delivers his lyrics throughout the throughout the verses, you know it it, it really is him rapping in a way. Um, yeah. And so I, so I always found that pretty interesting. And and ultimately, it's it's a to me it's a it's a nod to James Brown because um, to me he's the originator of of rap. You know, just because funk um, at its essence, you know, it it, it it embodies all of the you know soul. Uh, you know, hip hop, R and B, like it, it was all of that wrapped up in bad. So I, I think I, that's the one thing I found interesting um, is that it really is Michael's interpretation of hip hop, and I think he knocks it out of the park. Do we think that it works better as a solo MJ song than a rumored duet with Prince? The, the mm. Prince, the Prince fan in me wants to hear what what that would have been like but exactly yeah yeah <laughs> but uh you know as I, as I kind of discussed and alluded to i don't i think if there was to be a, a a real perfect prince michael collaboration you would want them both to be writing the music both to be writing correct the, both to, to be doing the production i think yep. if it was michael on a prince track or prince on a michael track it was always going to skew in one of the other's favor um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and Prince, as he heard it, kind of said, look, this is going to be a hit without me. You don't need it. You know, but but still, I would I would just love to to hear what those two combined would have uh, would have would have sounded like. But I think ultimately it, it worked in Michael's favor because it is his statement. It is his kind of call to arms and um, it resonates more be- being a, a, a solo vocal uh, delivery. Yeah, yeah agree. Agree. Yeah. But would um, so cool, especially if there was a video and it was a duet. That can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it, it it definitely would have been interesting if he was Wesley Snipes' character. Um, and, <laughs> and and to kind of um to go off of a, of a of a point that was made earlier, um and I believe Andy may have said this is that um, uh not only was Michael's blackness being questioned, but Prince's uh, blackness was being questioned around this time as well, because off of the success of Purple Rain. Uh, he came out with Around the World in the Day and Parade. And uh, there were grumblings within the African-American community that Prince had forgotten his funk roots. So I think that's why when he came on to Sign of the Times, which came out in March of 87, which I believe it was uh, uh, six months before uh, Michael came out with Bad, um, that's why you hear songs like Sign of the Times, Housequake, The Ballad of Dorothy Parker, etc. It, it was an intentional move to show you know, the African-American community, hey, I haven't forgotten my roots like y'all thought i fell off watch this and so i think that in a way lyrically and thematically i think it it does kind of parallel what michael was going through at the time but to agree with uh, the point that was made earlier i believe that bad is stronger as a as a solo michael jackson showcase i would agree and and before we get on to the next track the way you make me feel i got one last question about image and andy you spoke a little earlier about questions before bad came out as to whether michael was going to try and appeal a little more to a white audience or a black audience and chris you sort of just echoed that then as well about critics you know already questioning michael's blackness we can see on the album cover that michael clearly has um, lighter skin on that album cover than he had had on previous albums before but what's interesting is that i don't think Personally, that was a, um, a result of vitiligo myself. 
I mean, he, you can see on the Bad World tour that he's very dark and Smooth Criminal, very dark. But on that album cover, which came out before either of those two events, he has lighter skin and that's clearly a makeup choice. So do you think that any of Michael's own decisions in terms of his appearance were, and even in the bad music video were impacting critics discussion around that album at the time? Do you think he had any involvement in that whatsoever or not? I think the, um, you know, whether, you know, this is a period where, you know, Wacko Jacko had kind of started and in the, in the absence between the victory tour and bad, Michael kind of pretty much dropped off the scene, you know, was, was uh, popped up here or there, but, but musically kind of really didn't, didn't push much. And so in that vacuum, you know, all those stories uh, that started to to kind of precede um, the launch of Bad made it possible for people to start kind of playing against the way that he looked and, and started kind of making all those assumptions and questions. You know, Michael says that the Vida logo happened for him, I think he says around off the wall thriller era. So it definitely would have been affecting him how much it was you know, widespread, I don't know. So I'm not going to comment on that. But I think there was definitely him dealing with that. But I think, you know, to, to Chris's point earlier, even the imagery of the bad album cover, the dance troupe that he's got in the music video, it's kind of a, a reestablishment in a sense of his blackness, despite what he might have been going through physically that was challenging that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything that uh, Andy just said. Um, I, I do believe that his uh, his changing skin appearance definitely had an impact on how critics and fans, you know, received the album. And I think had that not been a factor uh, on top of the, the wacko jacko persona with the elephant man bones and uh, the hyperbaric chamber, I believe that uh, bad would have been uh, perceived uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a better light than, than what it ended up uh, coming across as uh, at that time in 
Hey, this is really, really Brad Sundberg, studio engineer and technical director for Michael Jackson and host of In the Studio with MJ. You're listening to the MJ cast. Let's chat a bit about nearly my favorite song on the album, but I won't reveal what my favorite one is just yet. This is by far, I think, one of Michael's biggest songs of all time. This is a song you can put on today and kids will just want to hear it and they will dance to it and they will sing to it and they will love it. It's an absolute timeless classic and one of Michael's biggest mega hits, The Way You Make Me Feel. What do we think? Well, here's a little excerpt and Andy's written, with a pure pop sensibility, The Way You Make Me Feel is one of Michael's catchiest compositions. His vocals are near flawless and there is a sense of joy in his delivery that is very reminiscent of the finest moments from Off the Wall. With a deep mix of musical layers from jagging synth strings to hot and sexy horn blasts and of course that intoxicating shuffling swing beat, The Way You Make Me Feel is a high dose of elastic funk and was destined to be a hit. Andy. Would you like to expand on that? Yeah, I think, you know, um, the story goes that that Catherine, as with the rest of the world, was listening to Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And if you know that track, you know that it's got a very similar kind of shuffle beat. It wasn't ever the, the first track to do that, but, but um, that was kind of what was a big hit at the time. Uh, that Michael was starting to to write and record for Bad, and Catherine said to him, "You know, you should do a song with this kind of shuffling beat." And um, thankfully, he he took that challenge up, and and what we get is the way you make me feel. What I love about this song is that production wise, it's 
it's quite well it appears quite sparse you kind of listen to it it's got the the thumping throbbing bass line you've got the occasional horn blast and you've got some synth beds and it's michael's vocals that are really in the fore but when you kind of start to listen and listen and deep dive into to listening to it and, and pull out the instrumental version you notice how many layers there are in production just the bass line alone there's there's, you know, an electric bass for, and it's layered with a synth bass and then there's another synth bass on top of that. And then, you know, there's just all this beautiful production with, with kudos to, to Quincy and, and to Michael and obviously engineers and, and Bruce Wadeen pulling it all together to give that. The song just has such energy, you know, uh, as Brad Sundberg talks about, there's a little bit of studio trickery going on to give it that extra bit of punch. They they kind of sped the song up a little bit uh, for the album release just to give it a little bit more punch. So technically it doesn't sit in any key register. It's kind of in between keys, which again, you know, just points to Michael wanting to go for a feel, Michael wanting to, to write songs that are going to get you dancing, and this definitely does. Chris, is this one of your favourite tracks off the album? It most certainly is. Um, It's arguably the most popular song on the album, in in my estimation. What I wrote in uh, my 30th anniversary tribute, I felt that it channeled the flirtatious spirit of PYT, if you really think about it. You know, it's him, you know, really, you know, asserting his uh, his um, his masculinity and, you know, uh, you know, trying to, you know, please his love interest. I felt that it was uh, it, it was it was a great uh, continuation of what he already started on Thriller, and to what uh, Andy wrote in in the ebook, um, his uh, his vocal harmonies are so lush that it does recall th- those finer moments from Off the Wall, and um, so so when when you take that seamless blend of pulsing electronics and that vintage soul, um, you're 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 bound to have uh, you're bound to have a number one hit with that. And I, another thing that I thought was fascinating from the Bad Twenty Five documentary was uh, how loud his finger snaps are. Like that to me is one of the, the the best qualities about him is that just musically he just he couldn't contain his creativity that it, it just can't it came oozing out of him. Um, so I, now that I know that how loud his finger snaps are, anytime I hear that song, I can clearly hear it whenever he's uh, whenever the song's playing. So so yeah, it's definitely one of the very best moments on the album for sure. It's almost as if his body is like a complete musical instrument. There's like he uses, you know, he, not just his voice, but you know, his uh, sounds that he can make that then gets put into the percussion. But then he's yeah, finger snaps and claps. It's yeah, he's just a complete musical instrument. And with you some mentioned that his vocals are so lush, they are. They're so pure and they're so melodic. But then he's got that grit and this this edge to them in this song. It's yeah, very cool. It's it's one of the best. Yeah, it totally is. And what's interesting about this song is that I've I've um I know people that have have actually heard Michael's own demo of this song before it was taken to Quincy Jones to be you know reproduced with um you know the instru- uh, the i guess the session musicians that quincy chose to bring in and, and also with bruce swedean's brilliant um engineering and michael's own version of it apparently and i haven't heard it but i but i have heard that it's incredibly similar to what ended up being on the actual record like the the rumor is you know that 
well, not rumor, but I guess one of the common perceptions is that the only reason off the wall thriller and bad sound good is because Quincy is such a genius and he is an absolute genius. But this, this piece of information kind of flies in the face of that, that Michael was able to create some of these incredible hits on his own in his Havenhurst studio, sounding incredibly polished and finished already before being brought to Quincy. Not to detract from Quincy's brilliance, but I just um, found it interesting how much effort Michael put into the demo before polishing it up for release. And that has a lot to do with, I mean, Michael was surrounding himself with uh, Chris Carroll, John Barnes, Matt Forger, Bill Bottrell. And, you know, they were kind of like the B team as as Quincy and and the A team kind of referred to them. But but they they were there from the very beginning over at Havenhurst in the laboratory kind of working on these songs and, and getting them to the to the point where, you know, Michael's demos could have been released. That could have been the album. Uh, you know, Quincy came in, gives them some extra little bit of polish. But, yeah, I mean, to your point, the, the disconnect isn't massive between what Michael brought in as the finished demo to, to what ends up being the direction and the sound on the album. There were a lot of times where Michael would would kind of refer back to the demos that they recorded and, and kind of say, you know, the bass sounds better in the in the uh, the demo that I did. So we need to get Chris Curl back in and and get him to to figure out why it's not sounding as punchy on the the finished album Quincy version. And so there was a lot of back and forth in the in that respect as well. It certainly feels like to me um, that Michael was growing a lot in his independence as an artist, um, especially mm-hmm. in his uh, experimentation and collaboration with, um, you know, different engineers and musicians at Havenhurst. The, yeah. There's also rumor has it that Michael recorded a ridiculous amount of um, songs for this album that we haven't we haven't heard. Dozens and dozens of tracks that um, were considered. And it's, I guess that's just a testament to how Michael sifted through so many ideas to get to the absolute timeless gems like The Way You Make Me Feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, according to my research, um, to kind of dovetail off the point that was just made, is that apparently Black or White was written during these recording sessions. So it just lets you know just how far, like just how forward looking he was. And, and just he was in, in, in an incredible a creative space. So I, I, you know, to, to know that there's a demo out there that exists uh, of the way you make me feel is like, we, we need to go banging on the uh, estate's door and say, Hey, where's it at? You know, <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, but it, it, an incredible point, just, just where he was uh, creatively is just, it's, it's phenomenal. It just, I mean, the ideas were just pouring out and um, by having, you know, Chris Carell, uh, Bill Patrell, uh, Greg Fillingangs, John Barnes, etc. I mean, all of these guys played an integral part in bringing Michael's ideas to life. And another thing that I found interesting, and I've told this to quite a few, uh, you know, Prince fans or what have you, is that one thing or one element of Michael's creativity that I think gets overlooked is his uh, compositional prowess, because he's able to come up with notes that even stun the most trained musicians. So you know, for him to have that quality and you know be able to explain it. Um, and sing it, you know, and, and, you know, use his body, you know, as a literal musical instrument to explain the, you know, the stuff that was in his head is, you know, that's what made, that's what separated him from everyone else. Q, one of the things that you mentioned about, you know, Michael's finger snaps and his claps, 
one of the great things during this era was when every uh, single got released, when you went out and bought the 12-inch record of it, um, there was the a cappella version. And so you would listen to just Michael's pure vocals. The bleed of the of the track, Michael must have been listening to, to music so loud. But there were the finger snaps. There were the foot stomps. There was everything. He was just – it was a performance for him. He wasn't just stepping up to the mic and singing. He was performing and capturing that. And so all those finger snaps, all those stomps on the, on the drum risers – you know, is just in the embodiment of Michael feeling the rhythm, feeling the song and just expressing that raw emotion and talent into the mic and just capturing it. And it's, you know, there was discussion about should they take those things out? And I believe it was Swedeen who was like, no, 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 you got to keep all that stuff in. That's, that's, that's the performance. Oh, for the days of those alternate mixes and the stripped back stuff and the extended mixes, hey? Yes, mm. yes. <laughs> All right, let's move on to track three, Speed Demon. It's one of my favorites off the album. Uh, Just a little excerpt from the chapter of Speed Demon from Andy's book. Once again, using sound effects to give his songs a filmic quality, Speed Demon kicks off with a motorbike revving up and driving by our oral plane with an almost 3D-like quality to it. It's a nice cue to how Michael will use spatial awareness of sound in the track. With an industrial funk foundation, Michael accents the groove with his own beatboxing that jumps from the left speaker to the right. With the initial verse compromising of just beat and synth bass, Michael's vocals are placed front and centre. And then the chorus hits... And we are met with the wondrous lush harmonies and fluttering bass slide underpinned by popping funk bass slaps. Michael's vocals are gritty and raw, adjusting his delivery on each pass, twisting and twirling words, giving them new inflection and prominence, especially with the loaded word boy. Initially, when Michael utters this word in the first chorus, it feels a little throwaway, casual almost. But by the time the final part of the song plays out, Michael is adding a sense of taunting to the line. One of my favorite tracks, just the, the, the breathy percussion moving from one ear to the next, the, the use of the metallic hollow drum sound, the richness, the the depth to the sound on this, it really is cinematic. And those key changes, like seriously, who does that? It's incredible. The use of <laughs> the use of stops, like where there's like little stops and almost silence between sections is just so brilliant and so clever. And those ad libs, like they are some of the best, aren't they? Like, it's so good. I, I just love this track. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that, for, and for, for me to speak on this real quick as a dancer, that last minute and a half lights my soul on fire. Just that instrumental breakdown, and you, it goes into the section of pull up a boy. Like, just, oh, God. Like, literally lights my soul on fire. And, and as I listen to that lyric, um, it kind of reminds me of black or white boy. Is that girl with you? Yes. We're one in the same. And there is a, uh, a racial undertone to that. And I think it kind of ties into speed demon as well. That's just something that uh, jumped out at me. And, and I found it interesting just how Michael will play with certain words and how there are certain undertones that, you know, the casual listener may not listen to, but 
you know, people like like us, we, we pay attention to those little details. And it's amazing how, uh, you know, something that appears to be so subtle can make such a difference on a track like this. A- absolutely great. Absolutely great track. Yeah, this is a track I kind of slept on for a really, really long time. I it was it wasn't one I would ever skip on the album, but I think it sort of has suffered a little bit in one way where Moonwalker became such a big hit with kids all around the world that people couldn't help it but really visualize that film when they were listening to the song. And it's almost I think in some ways where the visuals of that film overtook the uh, musicality of the song itself and people's ability to appreciate the song without, you know, disconnecting it from the movie. And that was certainly the case with me. I, I'd seen that movie so many times. I was kind of like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, Speed Demon is from the movie. And I just kind of didn't really appreciate it until a couple of years ago, really. Um, you know, just very recently, I started re- like listening to it and appreciating the instrumentation. I think I told you, I think it was on Twitter, actually, Andy, recently I... I, uh, yeah. I, shared a, I shared a video of a guy. I can't remember who it is. I'll put it in the show notes, but he's, he's this really awesome bass player, bass guitar player. And he's, he's playing like slap bass and covering the song Speed Demon. And it's brilliant, just that isolated element of the bass. Um, and that really drew me in and brought me in and made me appreciate the song on a totally different level. And it's absolutely one of my favorite tracks on the album at this point. Yeah, for me, I mean, uh, I hearing hearing Speed Demon, I can I can still remember the first time I heard it, and um, just being blown away and kind of mesmerized by by what I was hearing, just you know, pure funk just dripping out of the speakers and and the really sharp and fast kind of runs that 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 happen and Jerry Hayes blistering horn solo at the end and oh my god it was just so funky and just compared to you know what he was coming off with the way you make me feel and then also you know seeking into um you know the liberian girl it was just that moment of just kind of completely unexpected and you were just completely drawn in by it and it's interesting that you jamin that you you kind of mentioned if you do a YouTube search on Speed Demon covers, I think it has to be one of the most covered Michael Jackson songs by by musicians, just whether they're bass players, guitarists, horn um, players, drummers. It's just one of those songs that has such a rich melody and instrumentation to it that draws real musicians into to kind of wanting to give their take on it or wanting to play it and just take the challenge of being able to to kind of, you know, deliver that blistering feel to it. And um, it would be interesting to see. I, I, I would argue that of the tracks off, th- uh, of the tracks off Bad, it is, um, you know, probably one of the most that is uh, not well known, but within the musician's kind of area is one of that's probably the most covered. Yeah, it, you're right. It's, it's, it's just fire. And I have always wondered how it would have done had it been released as a single because it's just so good. (laughs) And I feel like Bad in general, the album had a lot of life in it still, even though, you know, it broke all the records for having the most, you know, singles come out of it from an album or something like that, the most number one hits. There's still songs on there that weren't released as singles that I think could have done really well. Hello? 
hello. <laughs> did yeah, did yeah, I just yeah. like yeah, destroy the conversation? That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, a good point. I went, you summed it up beautifully. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I have nothing to add on to that. <laughs> let, let, let me just do a drop in. Wow. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Vincent Patterson. Please come and join us on the MJ cast. We'd love to have you with us. The next track, which is Librarian Girl. Librarian Girl for Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. He loves those librarians. <laughs> <laughs> Librarian Girl. And Andy, you wrote Michael's lead vocal is smooth and seductive. There's a sensuality here that reels you in as each word parts his lips. His voice floats around you, dipping and soaring with ease. This legato vocal performance is amongst Michael's finest and showcases a sense of power and control. Whereas some of the tracks from Bad can feel dated due to the choice of hot-at-the-time sounds, Liberian Girl doesn't feel tied down to a specific time and place. The softer, more organic production gives it a timeless quality that makes every listen a chance to discover something new. 100% agree with that. So good. The vocals just float in effortlessly. They're so pure. Everything essential about Michael is is in this song. And uh, the harmonies, they just soar and they soar. And there are layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of vocals and yet somehow they made this song and the vocals in it just sound so simple. It w- it's, an, it's a miracle song almost. Com- when you know how much work and production went into it, it's like how can it be so not overproduced but so produced so heavily that it sounds so simple? That's the genius of, of Michael, first of all, as, as a songwriter and to Chris's point earlier, you know, people kind of – sleep on Michael as, as, as a great songwriter and a great composer. And this is a track which you just have to pull out and, and say to people, just listen to this. And then Quincy's production and, and Bruce's wonder on, the, on the, um, the control panel, you just, as you say, there's, there's such a density to the track. There's, 
everything kind of there, but it feels effortless. It doesn't feel like anything has been placed and anything's overpowering. It's just beautifully arranged and the song just floats. It's just this amazing, beautiful, rich, sensual song from Michael that I don't know of anyone else of his ilk at the time that was doing anything like this with with that kind of sense of almost world music brought into to pop and still kind of that slow burn ballad. It's it's one of my favorites of Michael period and definitely one of my favorites of the album. I think Quincy Jones um, often sort of name drops it when he's talking about Michael's brilliance. And I've heard him say a couple of times in different interviews, who thinks of songs like that? Who could do that? Certainly, yeah, I think one of Quincy's number one Michael tracks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is right up there with human nature for me in terms of its cinematic imagery. I mean, like you you can invent like the, the first 20 seconds as corny as this may sound, I can envision a sun rising up above the, you know, across the savannah, just like the Lion King. Like, that's how it feels in my mind. And then as he's, like, praising uh, his love interest, and this is another element that I really appreciate, is that he's praising African beauty. And, and that is so, that was so rare uh, within mainstream pop back at that time. And it's still somewhat rare now. We, we constantly see... Uh, you know, advertisements and, and different things that, you know, that they try to push their own definition of what beauty is. And and I love how Michael uh, just kind of takes it back to the essence of Africa and, and he praises beauty in that way. And um, it, it, yeah, it, it, like I said, it's up there with uh, human nature, butterflies, break of dawn. It, it, it's all up there. It, it's certainly up there for sure. It's a highlight. The video clip, it's 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 such a contrast to the song. It's, but yet the song, when you, when you think of the track, it's not like Speed Demon or Smooth Criminal where the video jumps to mind instantly. The song is bigger than everything else. And I love how in the book you, you do call it timeless and that the sound has not dated Andy because it really hasn't. No, there's just that there's, there's just an eternalness to it that, that, you know, I don't know what the magic was happening in the studio that day, but there, there is, you can put that song on now. I guarantee you can put that song on in 20 years' time and it'll still resonate. It'll still take you somewhere. And that was, you know, the part of what Michael was trying to do with this album was make everything a little bit more cinematic, make it feel bigger than, than just what the sound was happening. He was, you know, he was painting with sounds. He was really making sure that he took you somewhere with every song. Mm. One of the things I did want to point out is John Barnes, Michael's longtime collaborator, especially on this period, did confirm to me that this song is not Pyramid Girl. Oh, that's so, interesting. That's the rumoured demo, right, that it, some people th- had always thought it grew out of? Many people, and I can understand the the, uh, the association, that many people f- felt that Pyramid Girl was kind of like the precursor to Liberian Girl, but um, I had an opportunity to speak to John and, and ask him about that, and he said, no, they're, they're not similar at all. Wow. wow. Okay. Mm, one day, well, I hope we can, we can hear that. Hopefully yeah. that's the sort of thing we'd quite happily, you know, pay money to, to hear. To buy. Mm-hmm. We'll add that to the list for the uh, estate releases, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> a very, very long list. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
All right, moving on to Just Good Friends. Andy, you've written a true child of the 80s. Just Good Friends reflects where funk pop was precisely in 1987. Similar to another 87 smash, Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody Who Loves Me, the song builds off a multi-layered percussion-led drum machine groove and fritzing synth bass. For me... This song, the joy I hear between these two musical legends, these two icons of the industry, the joy is just infectious and it is so much fun. And the horns, just all of the horns. I I, I do really like this song. Who's next? Jamin, do you want to take it away? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, this song is... Um it's not one of my favorites. It's not a bad song and it's not a song that, you know, I don't necessarily not listen to because it's bad, but I, um, it just hasn't grown on me yet. And it might in the future, I need to give it a little bit more time, maybe in a few years or something, but yeah, I don't know. It's sort of the point of the album for me when I listen to the album, start to finish, this is around the point where I sort of, I don't know. It doesn't maintain for me the same, genius and brilliance as the first you know all the other songs we've talked about so far it's not terrible but um it definitely for me is a little bit it dips a little bit in terms of my enjoyment of the album i'll put it that way yeah i'm i'm right there behind you uh you know it and it god it, it pains me to say this because we've already heard what these two guys are capable of when we listen to I Can't Help It From Off The Wall. Yeah. So that to, that to me is the benchmark, you know? So I'm expecting something on that level. So then when I hear this, it's like, uh, all right. You know, it's like, you got Michael, Stevie, the energy's there, you know, like I, I, I appreciate it. But this this should have been, this to me could have been a B-side, honestly. And and then I think if you, if you wanted to slide in Streetwalker, I think you could do that. And then to me, you would have 11 like wall to wall bangers at that point. But yeah, this is the, this is one of the least essential, but it, it's still enjoyable because I mean, just, just for the two, you know, for the talent involved. And, um, and, and I definitely want to be respectful to the songwriters, you know, uh, Graham, Graham Lyle and uh, Terry Britton, because they're, they're hot off the heels of writing what's love got to do with it for Tina Turner. So I can, I can appreciate, you know, you know, Quincy and Michael and Stevie bringing those guys in for that. Um, but just knowing where Michael was creatively. And then of course, Stevie wonder is, is, is a national treasure. I mean, either of these guys could have come up with something that to me could have been on the same level as the surrounding material on this album. It's interesting to me because I think in Michael's career, there's often echoes between albums of, um, things that he'd done before. Like for example, you've got man on the mirror, Man in the Mirror, sorry, on this album, and we'll talk about that a little later. You got Cry coming out a bit later, Keep the Faith. With Just Good Friends, it seems to me it's, it's very similar in some ways, um, not, not musically, but it's kind of like The Girl Is Mine, right? It's two megastars, yes. two huge you know, singers coming together to sing about you know, a girl or whatever. And I, sometimes I wonder, like this, there were so many great songs there's so many very very interesting boundary pushing songs that didn't make the bad album for whatever reason abortion papers crack kills lots of songs that are completed that are dealing with very very complex 
subject matter that at some point I think in Bad's conception, recording and creation, Michael or somebody must have made a decision to move away from those controversial topical issues and to to go with some of these safer songs like Just Good Friends. And I don't know if that was the right choice. I mean, Dangerous obviously then goes in a direction a, li- a few years later of including all of those really hard-hitting topical issues. But with Bad, it seems a little safer compared to what he was actually recording in the studio. And I think for me, I'd rather have had one of those other cuts make it than, um, than just Good Friends. I mean, even if you took a song like I'm So Blue, which has, you know, that fantastic harmonica melody through it, you know, if you can you can hear Stevie playing that harmonica. You could hear how those two could work on that. For me, Just Good Friends is definitely the weakest track on the album. You know, for a Stevie and Michael duet, Get It um, from Stevie's Characters album definitely trumps it. It, it you know, as I say, it, it kind of is the, the of-the-moment song, but even I can... I can remember listening to it for the first time and just thinking, oh, okay, this was like the first misstep on the album. Yeah. Um, there are moments, look, there's the, the, the ad-libs at the end when the, the two, when Stevie and Michael are just trading off each other and they're just throwing out their ad-libs and, you know, there's, there's greatness there. And, and I've got to give credit to Michael's backing vocals on this, which kind of trade back to, to his Motown era and kind of almost bought a doo-wop. There's just there's just richness there, but all parts don't add up to a to a great sum in this one. And maybe it was, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I I don't know how. I would love to have been in the room at the time to to hear this kind of get up above some of the other tracks that we've heard. But I get that it's Stevie and Michael. But still, I uh, I I would take it out, slot in "I'm So Blue" or or put in "Get It," and you've got a you know, a flawless, flawless side A. I think for me, the, the saving grace for this track is their vocals. Might not be production or how it sounds, but I think their vocals are definitely the strength of this track. Yeah, and watching the footage from, watching the footage of them singing it in Bad 25 is pretty cool too. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, and look, and that also kind of is testament to the, to the talent that those two guys have, that what you're watching you know, is pretty much one or two takes on, on Bad 25 and they're killing it, you know, and, and what you're hearing is what's on the album. And so here are guys who are, you know, they might drop in a line here or there, but for the most part they're singing a song from, from the downbeat through to the, to the fade out and they're there every note just, just giving it their all and that's a joy to watch. But I just wish that the end result for me was a little bit stronger. Okay, let's move on to the song Another Part of Me. From your book, Andy, lyrically, the focus is on a common Jackson theme of belonging, a sense of global unity and oneness. Michael sings with a sense of hope and optimism clearly present in his voice as he sings about our interconnectedness and mutual dependency. You can almost hear his smile as he sings, we're sending out a major love and this is our message to you. Out of all of his sort of anthemic songs with this sort of theme, it's 
quite unique in its sound. Yeah. It didn't really – yeah, it doesn't sound like any of the others. It's definitely not like a Heal the World number at all. Uh, for me, there's like – there's an urgency in his voice here, in his vocals. It's a pleading almost. Uh, but for me, I think we mentioned earlier where I think was it was it maybe in Liberian Girl how nothing sort of overpowering anything – in this, for me, the music and percussion does sort of overpower his vocals to a degree. Does anybody else feel the same? Um, I think you, you're hitting on something there. Definitely the instrumentation in this song is a lot more bold than I think most of the other songs on the album, um, if not all of them. Uh, for me, I've always sort of thought that this is the most Prince-like song on the album if Michael was to ever do a Prince song. Like, it's totally... Definitely agree. It's really, really musically experimental. I'd love to know what sort of songs and demos it grew out of. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in the actual recording sessions for this song, where Michael's head was at, what kind of jamming was going on with the different musicians. It, It is really, really incredible. I do love the song. It's grown on me over the years. When I was a new Michael Jackson fan, it definitely was not one of my favorites because it I di- it wasn't in line with what I guess I expected of of Michael with his pop hits when I was a new fan. But over time, in terms of its musical experimentation, it's definitely grown on me and it's definitely one of my favorites now to listen to. Especially that extended mix on the bad mixes, uh, which has some really awesome um, sort of guitar lead guitar solos that aren't on the, the album version. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember the uh, the first time I heard this song, it was uh, it was in one of the opening scenes of Rush Hour with Chris Tucker and yeah. Jackie Chan. <laughs> I love that bit. <laughs> and oh my gosh, like as a kid, I was maybe seven eight years old at the time when it came out, but I remember laughing so hard at Chris Tucker because I knew that he was dancing like Michael Jackson, and and hearing another part of me behind him is it was classic classic moment. But yeah, this is another one of my favorites. And, and again, as a dancer, like this, it, it speaks to me. It gets me out of my seat. And musically, it's just a glistening vortex of synth, funk, jazz, brass, and neon colors. Like, there's just so much going on. And um, uh, to to a point that was made earlier, as far as like, it's definitely far from a heal the world. I would say that it's a it's really a sequel to Can You Feel It from Triumph. Mm. And yeah, that's uh, actually a really good point. Yeah. yeah. One, so yeah. So 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 that 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 optimism, like, it's just oozing out of him. And so th- this is. To me, this is just, you know, taking that and turning it up to 11. Chris, I'm covered in goosebumps right now. (laughs) (laughs) Nail on the head. Wow, yeah. He hit the 11 with this. (laughs) Oh, I've got a question about this one for you guys, especially those of you who were fans of Michael when Bad was coming out. Now, this song was had already been heard by people. It wasn't a surprise when it was on the album because obviously it's in the um, the film Captain EO that was shown in Disney Parks at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, what were your thoughts when this song was on the Bad album? Was it like, oh, yeah, we've heard this song before. This was in that Disney thing. Or was it still fresh for a lot of people, especially those people who maybe hadn't been to captain eo i had actually experienced it through captain eo first so it was great to have it on the album but it also felt like it predated the album if that makes sense um so it was a really uh, bit of a disconnect for me between hearing it 
and and it took me back to seeing Captain EO versus uh, hearing it fresh and kind of being able to judge it on its own merits. It definitely would have been one of the first songs that was, you know, worked on for the bad sessions, obviously worked on prior with Captain EO. So to me, it, it's a great song, but it feels like it almost predates some of the the bigger, bolder steps that Michael takes on bad. But hearing the live version with that extended jam at the, at the end is just magnificent. And, and again, just seeing Michael bring a track that has a whole lot of power to it on album, but when he delivers it live, he just takes it up another level and you just get blown away by it. And, and hearing it live through the short film was kind of what made me go back and rediscover it and really love the song again. I think you probably almost the only one that could sort of have that perspective of the the timing of it and where you heard it and saw it first for me it was I had heard it a lot on my cassette and eventually CD before I ever got to associate it with the the Captain EO version so awesome insight there Andy thank you so much cool do we dare to even tackle Man in the Mirror? That's what's up next. <laughs> Here we go. The way Michael interprets the lyrics of Man in the Mirror shows true mastery. His vocals are honest and dripping in humanity. The way he twists and climbs the melody to the chorus shifts the song to another level. And on the repeat chorus... Michael hits certain words with power to cue you in that a change is coming. And with that glorious stop, start, and choral emphasis on change, the song takes flight. For music critics and fans alike, Man in the Mirror has become Michael's Imagine, and rightfully so. Beautifully crafted and composed by Glenn and Saida, and wondrously delivered by Michael, Man in the Mirror is as much a song about the individual as it is the collective. A song about impacting the world around you by starting with the impact you make on yourself. The power of its message is in the simplicity of the arrangement, allowing Michael's vocals to carry and deliver it full of heart and conviction. No one can match the intensity or vocal power Michael does here as he lays it all out. Jamin, I know you're just champing at the bit. I'm go ready for to go. It. Let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> Let me at it. All right. So Man in the Mirror is hugely important in Michael's career. It is the anthem of all anthems. It, if you log into iTunes and you look at, you type in Michael Jackson Every single time I've ever looked in on Australian iTunes, Man in the Mirror is the number one Michael Jackson song. It's bigger than Billie Jean, it's bigger than The Way You Make Me Feel, bigger than Black or White. It is the song that people download of Michael Jackson in the most numbers, even so many years after it was released. Interestingly, I'm looking at iTunes right now and four of the six top Michael Jackson songs at the moment are from Bad, which is kind of cool. Uh-huh. I just think that this song is incredible, whether it's the live performance versions of the song, the song on the album, it is just so, it just transcends music. It, when I listen to it, it takes me to a whole different place. If I'm feeling 
down, if I am feeling bad, if I'm feeling like I need to change something in my life and improve myself in some way, this song is like going to church for me. Like it just takes me to a level by the end of the song where I feel empowered and that I can do something about whatever I'm struggling with in that moment. And I just, I don't have enough words for this song. It's so special to me. I think it's special to the world, not just Michael Jackson fans. And I'm so glad that people associate this song with, you know, being the most successful Michael Jackson song so many years later. I love it. Yeah, it's got that uplifting um, spiritualness to it that that you just can't escape. You know, massive kudos to, to Glenn Ballard and Sada Garrett for writing such a beautiful song. You know, Michael helped kind of craft uh, the middle eight and Sada kind of went off and <laughs> wouldn't let Michael kind of fill in the four more lines that he wanted and she was going to deliver it, and she did, and... Um, but you gotta, you gotta, you know, take your fedora off to Michael for uh, for the way that he just knocks it out of the park on this one. He just, yeah. he's he's somewhere else on this track, and he's taking us with him, and uh, it's oh, it is indescribable. You just you put it on, and you are just filled with this glow that you just want to be a part of, and. There, there seems to be everything in the world seems to be right for one moment while this song's playing. Yes. And uh, it's it's just genius. And Michael's delivery, the, the Andre uh, Crouch choir in the background, just, you know, the call and response. You know, I, I say that this is, you know, Michael kind of goes from repenter to, to pastor to kind of leading the choir to – it's just powerful. It's just genius stuff and – there's there's a reason why it still resonates and you can put it on anywhere in the world today and and people stop and take a moment and, and get into it and it's uh it's just a powerful powerful song and it's genuine it doesn't come across as cheesy or corny like i think some of michael's other you know ballads of that nature kind of do what what was that song that was um on the ultimate collection on the line or something like that like that's that's yeah. okay it's not Baby bad it's yeah it's it's all right but it's sort of like a little bit corny or cheesy to me and this song has none of that it's just completely 100% genuine and heartfelt i think yeah um the, and, and everything you guys have said it has been spot on so I, I feel like there's not really much that I can add on to it but uh but there is one thing that I did find interesting um just just, and I know we've talked about Prince quite a bit but I found it interesting how when Prince came out with Sign of the Times in March you know that song like he's talking about the social ills going on through the world um and then to have that followed up by Man in the Mirror to me that was really a great one-two punch by two great artists um you know by being able to be socially aware of what's going on um, you know, Sign of the Times was, you know, addressing the problem and the man, man in the mirror was inviting you to be part of the cure. If you want, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. Um, so I, I found that to be pretty interesting, uh, from two of my favorite artists to kind of do that one, two punch in the same year. Mm. Awesome insight. Love that. Yeah. I, I don't know what else I can add really. Like the song is got to be in ev- like everyone sort of top 10 at least it's so good like and it just it builds 
builds up so much and just sweeps you up with it and it takes you to the top of the mountain to belt out the lyrics yourself almost. Like you always sort of find yourself singing along and, and, you know, the message just takes you. I love that valley at the three minute 50 mark just before the ad libs start and it just reinforces that this isn't just you who believes in this. There's like a huge crowd behind you and you can all make that difference. You can all make that change. It's such an important track in in the legacy and it's such an inspirational song that, yeah, it, it's just perfect. And Michael's performance at the Grammys of this yes. was just, you know, you just <laughs> you still can watch it today and I, I defy anyone not to be moved and get goosebumps and just, you know, want to stand up and applaud at the end of that. Um, and, and especially that the, the, the riffing in the final kind of minute and a half that he does when, when the live vocals kind of kick in and, yeah. oh, my God, just the, the dancing, the spins, the drop to the knees, the call-outs, the drop in the voice, the slides he does. It's just phenomenal. Like one of Michael's, you know, again, prime examples of the, the consummate singer, uh, performer, dancer, musician that he was. I just wish it was all yes. live because that last bit of it is just stellar. <laughs> yes, totally. That That's Preacher Michael right there. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I, I, and this sounds so petty, but I kind of want to give the side eye to the Grammys on that one. Like, how do you mess up the, the equipment on that? You know, like that's <laughs> one of those moments you have to get that right. But, um, but yeah, I remember the first time I watched it and – I, I'm not ashamed to say this. Like I had a Denzel cry moment. Like just that one tear came down my cheek. And I was like, good God. Denzel cry. Yeah. Oh man. It, it, it wrecked my soul. And, and as Andy mentioned, like that's, that's one of those, like it'll, it'll, it'll never get old. It will never get old. It will always have an impact from, from 1988 to 2088. You know, anyone that watches it is going to feel something when they watch that performance.
This is Mike Smallcomb, author of Making Michael, Inside the Career of Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. All right, let's keep it on moving. We've got a good pace going, guys. I just can't stop loving you. So, Andy, you've written, dispensing with the heavily electronic sound of the rest of Bad, I Just Can't Stop Loving You is a song lush with organic instrumentation, a masterful pop ballad that brims with romance, the song lifts at the chorus. There is a shimmery brightness to the production that glistens without being too glossy. Michael's vocals range from impassioned to aching and sung in his more natural register. It gathers in confidence from the bridge onwards as Michael lets loose with joyful ad-libs. Chris, do you want to take the lead on this one? Absolutely. This is, uh, again, another highlight, you know, to know that Michael and Quincy were contemplating on, you know, whether or not they wanted to have Barbara Streisand, Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, you know, as his duet partner. I'm so thankful that Saeeda Garrett ended up being the last minute inclusion, because to me, that their their vocal chemistry, it, it just has that positive chemistry that you just can't teach. You know, it, it, it fits perfectly. It, it's just, wow. It, it, it never gets old to me. Um, it sounds so sincere, as, uh, as um, Andy had mentioned. You know, and honestly, like, it, it evokes memories of, of that classic period between Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Like, it has that, that genuine feel about it. Like, it, it feels like something you would hear, you know, a Motown Legends cover. So I, I think that this is a song that, regardless of who sings it, it will always ooze that sincerity, and and it makes you want to you know grab the person that you're closest to, and you know really show them how how much you can't stop loving them. Yeah, this song it's definitely one of the songs I like listening to most on the album. It has its haters, I know it does. I don't know why, because <laughs> for me, like the people that hate on it usually talk about it as if they don't feel that Michael's being genuine in the song or they don't, they can't imagine Michael being a lover like he portrays himself on the song. But for me, I, I don't feel that. I've never felt that. I think it's a, a great song. I think it's heartfelt. I love that Michael chose to perform it on a range of his tours. I just wish that he'd had a chance to perform that on This Is It live. It is a beautiful song and it's a great ballad and Michael's voice shines on it and I love it. It took me a while to get into and I think, um, you know, with the first pressing of the album and when their single first got released, that spoken word introduction. And, you know, don't forget that this was our first taste, you know, outside of another part of me, our first taste of of where Michael and where Bad was going to be. And this was kind of like, you know, in in a way, a little bit of, the girl is mine, you know, preceding thriller. It kind of got people scratching their heads a little bit and, and had us all digging the song, but also kind of going, is this what it's going to be like? And I remember the first time I, I heard it just, you know, the, the masterful way that um, both Saida and Michael blend their voices where you're kind of sitting there for a moment going, is Michael singing this line? Is Saida singing that line? That's, um, that's right at the two minute 13 mark, I reckon. <laughs> you know, at night when the stars shine and then it goes into Saida's line. It's like, how how is that? Is that not their voices becoming one? Yeah. And it's, you know, I take the spoken word part out of it. And, um, you know, you've got a really authentic, convincing Michael Jackson love ballad and it is 
still powerful and still poppy and still has all the hooks and it's not necessarily one of my all-time favorite Michael songs but but when I do hear it when I when I listen to it I I can't help but just be drawn in by it it's it's magical it's an incredible song I think I've overdosed on it a bit like I hear it a lot in my shuffle because there's you know the other versions of it as well I, I do like it I think I just overdosed on it and I can still appreciate it. I was listening to it last night and it's and it's it's almost like a grand show tune, like a big Broadway ballad. It's almost like a Disney power ballad. And that's not saying in a negative way, because like you know I'm a big Disney fan as well. So but yeah, the voice pairing is magnificent. I as as amazing as like when we get the little glimpse of, of Judith on the this is it preparation. Yeah, Saida was perfect for this. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to have heard Michael and Whitney on it because I think I, I don't think I would have bought Michael and Barbara Streisand. I don't know if I would have bought <laughs> Michael and Aretha, but I probably would have bought Michael and Whitney, and and that would have been a, a a great great performance as well. But you know, it's fantastic the choice that they made in Saida, and she just kills it on this track as well. Agreed. I think I would have loved uh, Whitney and Michael on like a, a more dancey number. Yes. Oh, can I you imagine? That. Hell Man. yeah, that would be so good. Yeah, that that that, do, that that would that would that would shut the club down. Back yes, it, it would. would shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> it would shut it down now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, Jermaine was busy singing with Whitney, so we yeah. we got that at least. We got that, and that's great. <laughs> we did do that. <laughs> All right, now, oh my God, I'm so excited for this one, yeah. Dirty Diana. Mm. With each passing verse, Michael's resilience weakens and Diana's seduction becomes more alluring. In the second verse, he lays out the trade of sexual favours for a moment in the spotlight as she promises to be your everything if you make me a star. Cello's A Film Noir Mainstay leads us into the third verse where Michael tries once more to resist before finally giving into temptation. It's a turning point both in the song but also in Michael's wider lyrical narrative as he becomes a willing participant in lust. The final line just twists the track once more as Diana claims ownership over her prized seduction, exclaiming, he's not coming back because he's sleeping with me. This song, my God, this is like dark synth rock (laughs) cinematic landscape. And it is incredible. Like vocally it's story, you know, it's, it's, just dripping in dark rock and it's fantastic. And the guitar work is just awesome. And who has not had this playing so loud in the car that the windows are just vibrating? Yes. It's just, oh my God. <laughs> yep. Bring it on. I could just crank this so loud anytime. I just love it. It's rock MJ and I am quite partial to some rock MJ and this is one <laughs> of these finest rock moments. <laughs> who wants who wants to go next? Because I'm, I'm just going to sit down. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would love to go if you don't mind. Go for um, it, Chris. Yeah, because my enthusiasm for, for this song is right up there. And uh, 
uh, you guys have mentioned the uh, poll that I posted in the archives page. Uh, this came in at number 10. And, and I'm so glad that it did because to me, it's a hybrid of Billie Jean and Beat It. Obviously, Beat It has a hard rock feel, but that predatory nature of Billie Jean and even Heartbreak Hotel for that matter, to me, this is a mesh of both. And it's, it's just, it's, it's grittier. As, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it has that cinematic feel. You can, you can envision the music video in your mind without even knowing what the music video looked like to begin with. Yeah, it's just, oh my gosh. And then Steve Stevens from, from Billy Idol, to me, he just, his, his guitar work on this, like, it, it's, it's as if there's like jagged lightning going across a blackened sky when he gets on that guitar. It just, oh my gosh, it just blows everything out of the water. And um, yeah, just his, Michael's sense of storytelling, uh, again, is just, he's a masterful storyteller. And um, yeah, I'm, I was so happy to see that this come in at number ten uh, on the uh, on the on the poll that I did recently. Uh, it, it deserves to be up there uh, amongst his very best. You know, one of the things that I love about the track is that um, Steve Stevens is kind of given that space to to be the guitarist on the whole track. You know, obviously with Beat It, Eddie has his solo moment, but but here. It's it's almost like a duet between the guitarist and 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 Michael and bingo bingo and, it, and yeah, it's kind of like absolutely. it's it's like what Michael did later on with whatever happens with Santana and and himself yes and mm-hmm. it's just when there's those moments there's just so much power to it and you know I love um, you know Chris you bang on that that Michael had kind of you know almost been the victim of of the femme fatale kind of trope in Heartbreak Hotel and Billie Jean and, and various other songs. But here it's kind of like that moment where he's kind of going, he's tempted by it and he's no longer afraid. He's no longer, you know, scared by the passion. He's kind of drawn to it and he's willing to to kind of cross that line. And for me, it was, you know, a lot of people at the time were like, oh, this is just beat at part two. And it was like, no, 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 this is its own entity. This is, you know, just because Michael had done a rock song didn't mean that it was just like the token rock song on this album. This was its standalone beauty of a, of a beast of a song. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it still, still just rocks out like nothing else today. And, it's again just the the brilliance of the the layering of stuff but also giving it space there's a there's a spatial kind of emptiness to the verses that again just lets michael kind of draw you in with the narrative and then those choruses hit and you know just blow the speakers up it's it's done yeah agree with everything everyone said it is freaking awesome i love this song i love the live performances of it as well i tend to find it um i think michael probably struggled a little bit with uh um being received as a rock artist in some ways because he was such a clean cut sort of image um and also well i think his 80s rock is either glam rock or just fantastical crazy awesomeness rock and I think he was received better in the eighties as a rock artist than he was in the nineties. I felt like with give in to me, especially in on the dangerous album. I don't know. I bought Michael a lot more as a, as a, as a glam rock sort of dude and (laughs) in dirty Diana than I did as a grunge rock in the nineties. But um, yeah, it is incredible. I love this song so much. I crank it like you said in the car all the time. It is awesome. 
What did it chart as? I can't remember how this song charted. Did it go number one? Yeah, it was the fifth and final number one song on the album. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of like, yeah, I don't know. It's probably, you could, it's funny though, because even, yeah, I mean, it's obviously very successful going number one, but it's a song you could play to kids today. And I'm not sure that they would instantly recognize it. You know, I think big Michael fans do, but if I played this in a classroom tomorrow, I'm not so sure that kids would associate it straight away with Michael Jackson. They they wouldn't they they would think that it was by the weekend because he covered it recently. <laughs> yeah, <or> fairly. <laughs> yeah, they they they'd be like, oh, that's the weekend. Be like, no, 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 no. Slow your roll. That this is a Michael track, all right? Yeah, you you go sit down and take some lessons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> take several seats yeah. on this one. <laughs> yeah, but it is. Awesome. Oh, I'm so glad we're all in agreement on that track. Yeah. But we're about to follow it up with Smooth Criminal. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> All right, Andy, you've written opening with panicked breathing and quickening heartbeat. Smooth Criminal is another of Bad's cinematic songs. And here it is all classic film noir, dark, menacing and threatening. Based on subject matter alone, Smooth Criminal was an unlikely hit. But the way Michael uses the music to create an irresistible hook has the listener enjoying the track long before stepping back to consider the darker consequences of the lyrics. Who wants to tackle Smooth Criminal, the the track on the album, which is a whole other beast really compared to the the film, which is even something, a whole other show in itself. Well, with this is, I can't separate in my head the movie from the song. And I don't know if I'd want to because it's <laughs> so incredibly brilliant. Right. I, I don't understand how this song didn't go number one. I just don't, I don't get it. This is a song that is instantly recognizable as Michael Jackson. You can play this song for anyone in the world today and they, will, they know it's Michael Jackson. I, I don't get it. I don't get how this song didn't go number one. It's so, it's got such a long lasting and deep and hard-hitting legacy in today's pop culture. I don't get it. Brilliant song. One of my absolute favorites. I prefer the Annie mix on the Bad Mixes album to the one that's actually yes. on the actual Bad album. I like yes. how that that version has an emphasis on real bass guitar, um, which I think in the final version, somebody might be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds as though it's bass guitar mixed with some kind of a bass synth whereas on the Annie mix it's it's just bass guitar yeah there's multi the multi layers there's um bass and a couple of synths that they've laid on top to get that fatter kind of sound. more menacing sound but yeah the Annie mix yeah. is is sublime and it's just for that just for that moment i think lyrically it's also one of the strongest songs on the album some of the like the best lyrics though are left left off the version on the album um, there's a longer version with other verses that aren't um, that aren't included in the album cut that I think are in the music video. Yeah, Moonwalker has it. Moonwalker has yep. it. Yeah, yeah. And I wish yep. I wish we'd had I wish we could get a CD quality version of the song with those extra versions at some point in the future. Definitely one of my favorites. Blows my mind that it didn't go number one. Classic Michael song. You know, to your point. Uh, I mean, it was a top ten hit, but. 
if you you know compare this to to what we were just discussing with Dirty Diana, if you played Smooth Criminal to to anyone today, they'll go, yeah, that's Michael Jackson. And it's interesting just looking at some of the tracks off Bad, the legacy that they've had in their own right. You know, this is definitely a song that overperformed than than what the charts kind of give it credit for. It's it's had a longer staying power than than some of the other songs that that um, got to number one. It's you know just a, a funky track that just just sweeps you up from the get go and just draws you in again. And it's that cinematic feel that that I mean I, I I keep saying it draws you in, it draws you in. But this is something that this album does constantly with you know with the vamps that they've got at the beginning, with the intros that they've got that just intrigues you, hooks your ear and then doesn't let you go as he just, you know, Michael is just working his way through the verses and choruses and just building and building with passion and and delivering those lyrics just razor sharp and it's uh, it, uh, there's a reason why still to this day you put it on and and people just want to get up and dance and the the short film you know with the lean and everything became extra iconic but for me I, I got the song first and and smooth crown will always be the song for me first before any of the uh, the visual art that, that went along with it afterwards. So when you first heard it, did you? have like obviously in hindsight we associate it with the criminal underworld and the 1930s gangster movies when you listened to it for the first time did you still get a sense of that for you know foreboding criminal underworld even though you hadn't seen the video not necessarily the criminal underworld i saw it more and i kind of referenced this in in um the book that it to me was more like a, a rear window sort of situation of, of yes. michael observing yes. what was what was help what was going across the way and feeling helpless in it for me the, i can remember the first time i heard the album this was like the the standout track for me this was blowing my mind in so many different mm. ways and I would just pick the needle up and drop it back down and just listen to the track again. And it packs so much punch and it feels so short at the same time. You know, I I longed for the extended mixes when they came out because I just wanted to hear this song infinitely just play on and play on and play on. And it just still has that that draw for me. It still has that power, that hold. When I heard the song, I did imagine him doing a 45-degree angle lean. But, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's just me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um if 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 i may uh the 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 song itself man i am so glad that michael stood his ground on this one because according to what i've what i've read and heard michael and quincy went back and forth on this one i'm glad that michael stood his ground because as you guys have mentioned this is a masterpiece of of storytelling just everything about it this is a five-star composition and especially when you listen to the al capone demo and see how it evolved over time. Like you can see, like there there are key elements that that stuck in there, and he just continued to refine it and tweak it. And it just it's it's a testament to his uh, artistic instincts to know what did and did not work. And when it was ready, it was ready. And, and as much as I want to dive into the music video, I'm 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 sure that we're gonna get to that point. Unless unless it's okay for me to start talking about it now. Uh, I don't think we have a dedicated section to music videos in this show, so just jump in, man. Now's just drop All it right. in. And and I may get some hate mail on this. I'll, I'll gladly give my social media handles if I need to. Smooth Criminal is the greatest piece of of musical theater ever. Um, a, a, above Thriller for me. 
just everything about it, you know, just from, uh, you know, the suits that he wore and the, you know, and the armband that, that he continued to have on, on his attire for the, for the duration of his life, tossing the quarter into the jukebox, his dance vocabulary. It's a, uh, it's a synthesis of Fred Astaire, James Brown, and even some Looney Tunes animation as we saw from the bad 25 documentary. And then of course, you know, the anti-gravity lean. And then at the end, you know, him, him wielding that Tommy gun, uh, just as, you know, uh, Mr. Big Soldiers are closing in on Club 30s. And then you add on, you know, the Moonwalker uh, video game. It, Smooth Criminal is the centerpiece of that. So, yeah, to me, th- this is the ultimate Michael Jackson spectacle. And and as much as I love Thriller, I understand its impact. Smooth Criminal is, is top. It's top of the list for me. One of the one of the interesting things, just going back to the track, is I've been fortunate enough to have heard the demo of, of Smooth Criminal. And you kind of you can place it. It's it harkens less to to Al Capone and more to where where the finished track was. But again, it was one of these situations where what you're hearing in in Michael's you know Havenhurst demo is what pretty much is is you know ends up on the album. There there's every every little element is there. Sure, they're polished and refined in the. Over at Westlake Studio D, but man, it's it's all there, and and it it just shows again, uh, you know, to Chris's point earlier, how Michael is kind of marginalised and and uh, devalued as a songwriter. But you know, if someone can uh, can write a song about a serial killer, and you know, have it chart top ten, and and thirty odd years later, still have people you know getting up to dance to it. You know that that's a marvel in itself. This is a an absolute miracle of a track and one of Michael's strongest. Absolutely, for sure. Uh, just you know, just touching on the film. If you haven't already, people go listen to episode sixty four where we speak with Vincent Patterson. He uh, helped choreograph and basically directed uh, a lot of that short film from uh, from Moonwalker. And there's some incredible stories there. And he explains where that that bit in the middle of the short film, the the piano bit, and all of the the interpretive stuff that where that came from, and it's yeah, some incredible stories there. Uh, with the track, I, I can't really add anything to what you guys have said. It's so good, it's just perfection. And and Andy, I wanted to make special mention of your um, Hitchcockian sort of uh, reference that you made in, in the chapter in your book. And I was like, yeah, totally. Yeah. This was like a, a rear window sort of uh, point of view. It was so good. So good.
This is Elizabeth Misu from Michael Jackson's Dream Lives On, an academic conversation. And you're listening to the MJ cast. We've, we've somehow arrived at the last album track, guys, but only on, was it, it wasn't on the cassette and I don't think it was on the LP, was it? It was only on the CD. Only on the CD. Correct. One of the, one, correct. One of the, one of the main reasons that I begged to get a CD player was uh, <laughs> I, I actually, I was uh, holidaying with my family in, in the US and uh, hit Tower Records and it was the only CD I bought because I didn't have a CD player at the time. But it was one of those long box CDs and, and it had that, you know, includes bonus track you know, leave me alone. And it was like, I don't know what this is, but I'm buying it. And I just, uh, yeah, as soon as I got, as soon as I got my CD player, this was the first thing I ever listened to. And, and leave me alone is just, wow. I mean, to me, take just good friends out, get Stevie and, and Michael doing leave me alone. And there's your, there's your 10 track. And yes, that's, that's killer, man. That's killer. Yes. All right. So in the book, just a little bit that you wrote was, he laments all that he has given to the relationship, but instead of drowning in sorrow, he sees the casting off of dead weight as an opportunity to move on. Ain't no mountain that I can't climb, baby, he sings defiantly, and with the tables turned notes, all is going my way. This track, man, I was first exposed to it from the Moonwalker film, and yeah, I was like, I need to get a CD player. I need to get the CD because I need this song so badly. It was an instant favorite of mine and I've always loved it. And it was many, many, many years later that I finally got the CD and it was worth the wait. It's incredible. The harmonies are sonic heaven. His little Michael vocal ticks are on fire. The ad libs are awesome. I just, I, it's, it's sad that so many people missed out on this track with just the, the LP and the cassette because it wasn't on there because it's incredible, incredible track and a brilliant album closer. It oh. did in, in Australia after, I think when Moonwalker was released, it did actually uh, get a single release as a, as a 12-inch and I'm not sure how it charted. I don't believe that it charted terribly well, but... Again, it was just, you know, this is Michael kind of, you know, doing a bit of modern jazz. And and it, to me, the fact that I, I get a little bit frustrated because I, I, I get it. I understand that people, you know, mostly got exposed to it through Moonwalker and, and so know the short film and, uh, and equate the short film with the lyrical content, but they're really two separate things. And for me, when people talk about Leave Me Alone as being his, you know, anti-tabloid song, it's not really that. It, it is a relationship song. It is a heartbreak song. It is a defiant song. It is a, okay, just you watch song. What they did with the short film is masterful and, and great kind of really meta before meta was even thought of. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's a powerful short film, but uh, the, the song itself is just sublime. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it um, I, I'm I'm so glad that Andy highlighted, um, the fact that "Leave Me Alone" the song itself is about a relationship on the rocks and how Michael is you know wanting to take control of the situation. Um, I think because the the vid, the the short film itself was so iconic that it kind of became you know in most people's minds the definition of that song, even though the, these are two totally different pieces of art. But yeah, it, to kind of dive into the the short film for a second, I, I love how he uh, reached out to Jim Blashfield, 
who had already done stop animation on the talking heads uh, and she was just the amount of detail that went into this short film is just incredible. Um, you know, they spent three days filming Michael on 35 millimeter camera and then spent a grueling nine month period, you know, cutting and layering hundreds of images. And um, just to see Michael, you know, kind of go through a fun house of these tabloid rumors and he's just having a laugh about it. You know, it, it, it just kind of it, it sums up. You know, the absurdity that, you know, sadly invest, infested the duration of his life as a celebrity. But but what I thought was awesome is uh, is the final moment where he breaks from that Gulliver's Travels um, spectacle that surrounds him. And he he stands up and he just like lets out the sigh of relief. And um, to me, that was that was so impactful when you look at everything he's been through since since he was a child up to that point. He just in, in that amount of time, he lived several lifetimes as far as being a musician and, and being a celebrity and, and you know just being a, a normal human being. He endured so much. So for him to be able to use sarcasm, you know, to kind of thumb his nose at the paparazzi's, you know, bias to me, it still showed that that there was still, you know, behind the media construct, there was still a human being. So to see him give that sigh of relief at the end, I just thought was very, very powerful. I and guess the, that sight, that sorry, Andy, that sight no, no, of relief at the end of the video, you know, that could still actually equally apply to the he's free of that relationship that he's singing about as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Good point. Good point. And it's also, you know, that what I love is that he's kind of the short film is really a a, a study piece on defiance. It's kind of like him twisting the uh, the public perception, the tabloid fodder and just going, yeah, well, this is what you think of me. Well, you know, almost like not that he's in on the gag, but he's he's having a laugh at it. And I love that, you know, as you say, he kind of breaks free of the of the circus that surrounds him and then kind of stands there triumphantly at the end. He's just towering over everything, you know, which is kind of a, a harken back to him being a, the the bigger than life celebrity, the bigger than life, you know, musical genius that that was the blessing and curse because it did make it feel easier for people to, to want to knock him down and want to take target at him. But as you say, Chris and, and Q and Jamin, you know, you've said it before about the humanity that was just constant in Michael and just that gets lost on a lot of people. And, you know, that's why for me, this song is, is an expression of humanity. It's an expression of a failed relationship. There's an accessibility there that is just super powerful and, and uh, the the way that he constructs the song and 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 delivers it is just with that sense of there's a, a defiant joy in it, which I just I just love. It kind of harkens back to some of the strong points of off the wall almost, and it's just genius. Well said. Well said. Um, it really sucks being the fourth person to talk about a song after you three guys have just done three <laughs> mic drops in a row. Um, <laughs> It's really, really good. <laughs> I'm not even going to touch on the, the lyrical significance or the, the video because you guys have just nailed that. I just want to sort of echo what Q said at the start about that vocal layering. Like when I first started listening to this song, the thing that I love most about it was the harmonies, just those stacked Michael harmonies. And this is yeah. this is an element I think that, or this is a similarity or characteristic that's there in a lot of the Jackson family members, whether it's, you know, Michael or Janet or 3T, there's something the Jacksons do that 
that it's just magic and it's the way they stack their harmonies and mm. just uh, it just I don't know it's something that I think you know Marvin Gaye pioneered in the in the 70s and yes. it's something the Jackson family have just run with and just done beautifully and this song if you ever want to hear if you ever want to show somebody how great Michael's vocal stacks are this is the one this is the one I love it mm. You know, Brad Sundberg talks about, um, you know, that this was the album where he he beautifully calls it, you know, the choir of Michael, mm. um, where there's just those multi-layered, like 16 tracks of backing vocals just to 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 fill out the the choruses and and as Michael progressed through Dangerous and History, there's less and less of that. So this album, f- just for that alone, is a landmark album because. Every time, you know, the the choir of Michael steps up, that's just, you know, it's that angelic moment of hearing those stacked harmonies and just the control that he has to do that 16 times at, you know, mid-ranges, high-ranges, low-ranges, just shows you what a consummate, you know, performer, singer he was. And as a songwriter, to be able to arrange all of that, to know where the harmonies were going to hit and, and. You know, I just I, that's one of my favorite parts of this whole album is is Michael's backing vocals. It's just sublime. I think much credit needs to be given to Frank, uh, Greg Fillingangs um, because of the work that he did with Stevie Wonder. I think that he was able to uh, bring that flavor um, as far as the synthesizers, the way that they're laid down. And then I think that just meshes beautifully with um, the stacked harmonies, as you guys had mentioned, where. Just the quality of it is on the level of remember the time or even money. But I, I, I think leave me alone is what set the tone for his stacked uh, harmonies, and it's just it, it's it's a thing of beauty, thing of beauty. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, this has been a great chat. We've gone through track by track all the albums on Bad, but we are going to finish the show off with one last topic before we give our. Uh, social media details and then wrap the show up and uh you know at least at least one of us here had the absolute fortune of being able to see michael jackson live on the bad world tour which is you know commonly regarded by fans as michael's absolute peak best tour that he ever did uh and luckily we've got andy here to be able to talk about seeing that tour live in australia so andy what were your experiences like watching the bad world tour Look, I've uh, I did a count the other day of how many concerts I've been to, and it's like up in the two hundred and fifty something number. And the the Michael Jackson Bad Tour remains like the concert. Interestingly enough, uh, the support act was a string quartet. I don't know why that sticks with me, but it does. You know, I, I saw him on November thirteen playing at uh, Melbourne's Olympic Park, packed stadium. No one, again, no one knew what to expect. And, you know, even at that stage, I can remember there were rumours that Michael was going to be performing behind a a plexiglass shield so that no germs could get on stage and and all this stupidity that was surrounding it. I will never forget that feeling of of all the lights going down, the floor of of the concert stage cracking open, you know, that little section of the stage starting to, to kind of peel back and the floodlights and the smoke just emanating from it. And then those five figures start ascending up the stairs and, and there's Michael. And, you know, the first time, you you know, the spotlight hits Michael and he does his finger point and goes into want to be starting something. From that point through to the, the last moment of the show, it was nonstop energy. There was, you know, the, the magic trick in um, 
was work, work and day working day and night into into beat it. Yeah, with the magic trick and just again stuff we hadn't seen. Now the set list was pretty much the victory tour plus uh, I just can't stop loving you and bad tacked on kind of to the end of the show. But even that, you you know, I personally wanted to hear what Smooth Criminal would sound like. But I, I can just remember everything from the the tour program, which had photos from the Smooth Criminal set way before we even knew what the short film was going to be like. There, it was just, you know, Michael singing 100% live, the band just 100% giving it, the dancers were phenomenal. This was Michael at his peak as a live performer. And I feel, honestly, I feel really blessed that I got a chance to see that. And um, it is a concert that just stays with me. And if I watch the Yokohama or if I watch the uh, the London uh, DVD, I, I'm just kind of taken back to those moments. And they still don't capture the energy that was just, you know, emanating off that stage and just connecting with everybody in the stadium. And and again, you saw the appeal of Michael from young kids to old adults to, you know, black people, white people, you know, every race that was, you know, in Australia at that time was was that represented at that show. And there was just that sense of feeling of, of enjoying it on mass with a whole lot of people and there was nothing but goodwill and nothing but excitement and that Michael was in our our city. Uh, performing a concert was just second to none. There were some pretty big differences, I guess, with different legs of the tour. Do you know much, like, can can you tell people sort of what some of the big differences were? Yeah, I think after, um, I'm not sure what stage the, the second leg of the tour started, but definitely by the time he was starting to tour through Europe, he was adding in more and more songs from Bad and taking kind of, you know, Things I Do For You out of the show he was definitely branching out more. And I remember Janet in an interview once asking Michael, you know, why don't you play more of your the album tracks off Bad uh, on this tour? And he said, well, they don't know it yet. It hasn't been released as a single. And it's like this is an album that's, you know, selling in the, you know, in the 15, 20 million stages um, I'm sure people who are coming to your, to your show know, know the uh, – <laughs> Know the know the songs, but you know that was right, Michael's right. mentality. But he, uh, yeah, he basically as, as the show progressed, and by the time it hit the states, it was much more heavy loaded with a lot of the the singles off Bad. Um, you know, you, you got your Dirty Dianas, you got your Man in the Mirror, you got Smooth Criminal, uh, you got the way you make me feel, um, another part of me. So that he was definitely doing more and more of that as the tour progressed. It wasn't the show that I saw. You know, as I said, we just had I Just Can't Stop Loving You and Bad. But, uh, yeah, even then that was just, you know, mind-blowing. I mean, it was 123 concerts, uh, I think in 15 countries, roughly like 4.4, 4.5 million people. It grossed 125 million. I think at one stage it was uh, he did one of the concerts to the biggest audience ever in, in the history of live, live shows. I think that's probably been surpassed by now. But, yeah, there was just, again, just this excitement, this – I know that when he was in Japan, they called him Typhoon Michael. But there was that kind of sense that he would come into town and everything stopped. It was the Michael Jackson show, wherever he was around the world for that week or for those couple of nights. And uh, to be in the audience, really – I mean, I got to see the um, the history tour as well. But for me, the, the bad tour was, was quintessential Michael. 
some of those tracks, especially I think like Bad, for example, they're really difficult tracks to, to sort of sing live as well. So the fact that he did end up including a lot more of the album tracks sort of, I guess, not only benefits us, uh, but for him as well, like having to learn how to arrange them and do them live. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, during the certain legs of the of the tour, for certain songs, he was definitely using some vocal assistance, but that wasn't the, the shows that I experienced. So I can't, you know, I'm sure you've got people within your network who probably saw him in, in Wembley or saw him, you know, at, in, in LA that could kind of attest to whether or not you know, how heavy that reliance was, which we definitely know was, you know, relied on more with later tours. But even then, uh, you know, just the, just the experience of, you know, what I wouldn't have given to have uh, seen, you know, Smooth Criminal on the bad tour to, to hear another part of me on the bad tour. And I just want to, can I take this moment to dispel the rumor? Yes, Stevie Wonder and, and Michael got up on stage in Brisbane, but it was to perform bad. They did not performed just good friends you know ever since those photos oh, wow. way back when came out everyone was like oh they did just good friends they did just good friends no 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 they didn't do just good friends it was bad and and still today there are people who go oh no they did that and it's like no they didn't but um yeah <laughs> it was just as as one of the you know the landmark kind of tours that that anyone did you know bad was was just phenomenal yeah, I really hope for the for the many of us that never got to see that that tour live, I really hope that at some point in the future we do get some kind of high definition release of it. Like you see bits and pieces of it in Moonwalker at the start. The Man in the Mirror compilation looks phenomenal, filmed in such great high quality. And I know some of those yes. um some of those concerts in the middle of the um second leg of the bad tour in the US, I think it was um, the Madison Square Garden shows, the LA shows, they have a lot of live vocals in them. I know that Michael started to rely a little bit at the end of the bad tour on playback, but in, in some of those US shows, he was singing The Way You Make Me Feel and Smooth Criminal completely live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can hear the bootlegs on YouTube of those songs. So I hope some of those were filmed and captured properly for release one day. I think a lot of it at that stage was depending on how he felt and how confident he felt during the actual show. And they probably, you know, had had the tracks cued and ready should he need to get assistance from them. And if he didn't feel like he needed to, he didn't give the cue and, and uh, the live vocals would stay. And at other times, you know, if I mean, it was a grueling schedule if you, if you look yeah. at it. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, would I prefer to hear Michael 100% live and not be dancing? Yeah, I would personally. But I think Michael and definitely later on in his career felt like he had to just be the consummate performer and, and not sing a bum note and that pushed some reliance on on um, on backing tracks. But, you know, f- for me, I need to hunt those out because I would love to, to hear those. And um, I'm kind of funny in that way. I, I try not to watch too many bad tour leaks on on uh on youtube or anything because i don't want it to interrupt what my experience was you know yeah so, good uh, move such yeah, a good yeah. move so yeah. much of my history concert experiences sort of been painted over like with watercolors by what i've seen on the internet and on on video since and that's a shame but it, that's what that's how memories work so 
good, good move. You're a stronger man than me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll just keep going with YouTube. (laughs) That's all I've got. (laughs) Get ready, Denver. The rumors are true. The event of the century is coming to McNichols Arena. Pepsi presents Michael Jackson. March 24th, the thrill is back. Michael Jackson in spectacular concert. Tickets go on sale this Monday at 8 a.m. at all Ticketmaster locations. Michael Jackson, live. Tickets this Monday at 8 a.m. at Ticketmaster, all tape cooks, and select budget tapes and records or charge at 303-623-TIXS. He's coming March 24th to Mike Nichols Arena. Michael Jackson, presented by Pepsi. Tickets also available at Gart Brothers, Monday morning at 10 a.m. Sleeping alone, why don't you come with me? I said my baby's at 
call, she's a darling, we're to find. I didn't call on the phone to say that I'm all right. Diana walked up to me, she said, I'm all yours tonight. I ran to the phone, saying, baby, I'm all right. Tommy Oregon guitarist on the Michael Jackson This Is It tour, and you're listening to the MJ cast. All right. Well, what what a chat this has been. This has been phenomenal, and I feel so lucky to be here with you guys talking about yeah. this great, great album. Um, we're in such good company, aren't we, Q? We are. My God, this is this is just as awesome as I could ever imagined it to have been. Andy, thank you so much for the book that we base this on for the for the awesome uh, MJ one hundred and one bad issue. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. I feel like I need to go back and rewrite it now after having this discussion. You know, <laughs> no. you know everyone's insights have just been phenomenal. So thank you. No, and and Chris, your insights have been incredible. Like your writing, your articles that you've written that we're going to be sharing in the show notes, as well as Andy's, like. You know, you're also a great public speaker on this and it's been an absolute joy to have your insights and to listen to you. So thank you so much. No, no, the, the man, I, I can't even thank you guys enough for, for inviting me because, again, you guys have been doing this podcast for, for a few years now. And, and Andy, I know that you and I have uh, communicated for, for a few years now as well uh, just because of uh, my appreciation for the work that you guys have done. Man, you, please continue to do what you're doing. Uh, I'm a huge fan of what you do. 
Um, you're keeping Michael's legacy alive for all the right reasons. And, and man, again, I, I'm so honored to be a part of this. I'm, I'm so glad that I got a chance to talk about one of my favorite albums with with three men that uh, that truly understand Michael's artistry. So, yeah, again, thank you. Well, hopefully it won't be the last time you're on the show. Please come back. <laughs> I, I, I will come back and I'll make sure that my sound is uh, is top notch too. <laughs> <laughs> that worked. It worked out pretty good. Can I ask, are you still sitting in your car? Yes, I am sitting in my car. Yes. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I, I, wow. I had a feeling I was probably going to get a little animated and, you know, and that kind of thing. So I didn't want to make too much noise because uh, uh, I, I live in a, a, a duplex. Uh, my, my house is uh, kind of a duplex. So I have a neighbor next to me. Um, so I wanted to make sure I didn't make too much noise. So. <laughs> well, don't be playing Dirty Diana loud at this time of the night then. <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm, I may I may take an exception to the rule i'm gonna have to crank that sucker up and my neighbors are just gonna have to deal with it (laughs) (laughs) or even better put the windows down and go for a drive and crank that up exactly (laughs) uh this has been an absolute joy but uh firstly can we get andy can you start to share your social media and where people can find your amazing free digital book series sure so to download uh Bad 30 or any of the um, MJ101 series ebooks, head over to mj101series.com. And as the guys have mentioned, each of the ebooks are free to download. You know, if you can, listen to the, listen to the album as you read along and uh, hopefully you enjoy it as much as uh, I've enjoyed sharing it with you. And uh, on Twitter, you can find me at mj underscore one underscore zero underscore one. Awesome. And Chris, where would you like people to find you and some of your stuff online? Sure. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at Chris Lacey, uh, C-H-R-I-S-L-A-C-Y. Twitter, I'm at, at Chris Lacey 90. And then uh, Instagram is Chris Lacey 1990. And within the bio of my Instagram is where you can find uh, my albumism uh, tributes that I've done for Prince, Stevie Wonder, Lana Del Rey, and of course Michael. So, and uh, and if uh, as uh, as you guys mentioned uh, at the top of the show, um, I did uh, just put up a video of me dancing. So if if you guys would like to see more of that, let me know, and I'll gladly share that with you. Uh, yes, please. We would like to see more. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You got it. Cool, cool. All right. Well, if you are listening to this, you've already found us. We are the MJ Cast News and Discussion on Michael Jackson and the Jackson family. We are a podcast and should be listened to on a podcast app such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, podcast apps, TuneIn, Stitcher Radio, Podbean. We're also available on YouTube as somewhat of an edited uh, form without maybe some of the songs. And then across online, Jamin, I'll do this for you. We are found as well as all the show notes and links that we have spoken about. So please go check them out because there's going to be some great articles and stuff that you can link to in the show notes. You'll find that at themjcast.com. We are across all of the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram as the MJ cast search for us on YouTube. You'll find our channel 
And you can email us, themjcast at iCloud.com. And I have a feeling that this episode is going to become uh, a favorite. I think I'll be listening to it more than once. And I think people are going to absolutely love the discussion that we've had. And they're going to be crying out for a hell of a lot more of these style episodes. So (laughs) let's see how we go, guys. Sounds Sounds good. good. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it over to Andy, then to Chris, and then I'll say farewell. And Jamin, you can have the last word. So, Andy, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate your time and the efforts that you put into these incredible books. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys, and um, thanks for everything you guys do for uh, Michael's legacy and uh, to everyone listening. Keep the music alive. Oh, nice one. All right. No, we're, we're all awesome fans of Michael and he inspires us in all our own ways. Chris Lacey, thank you for joining us for this episode. It's been a, a great episode for you to, to have your first visit to the show on and it's been a pleasure and we really appreciate your time and we hope that you've got your car window cracked for some fresh air. <laughs> uh, yeah I'm, I'm doing i'm doing just fine doing just fine but yeah thank again thank you guys so much for everything you're doing um and for those listening uh continue to to support michael's legacy it's 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 crucial that that we continue to keep this going um in order for generations uh beyond us uh to uh appreciate michael's artistry as it should uh and you're doing an awesome job of that thank you so much chris well from me Adios, folks. I will see you in a couple of weeks. This has been an absolute blast, and I've enjoyed every second of it. It's been such a relaxed and incredible discussion, which I very much appreciated. So thank you all. Stay tuned to the MJ cast for more. Michael on. Andy, I'll let you get going to keep writing your next 101 book. I want that drop next week, please. I can't wait for it. Um, Chris, I'm imagining you speeding off into the distance right now to Speed Demon. Q, you can go and feed your cats. Keep Michaeling. See you next episode. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. Damn, that was awesome. I know you did a poll recently, a big poll on uh, the top 50 MJ songs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, it, whenever it comes to a poll, I know that it's going to be uh, uh, divisive, but um, it was actually quite interesting uh, to see what people had to say. Um, there were quite a few songs that got a pretty high ranking uh, compared to what I would have done personally, but um, but it was great. Like I, I, I want to say, like well over uh, 500 people, uh, you know, participated in the polls. So I think we got a pretty good, you know, uh, I guess viewpoint of what songs really mean the most to to Michael Jackson fans. 
so yeah, it, it, it like I said, anytime someone comes up with a personal list, you're always going to be subjective and certain songs are going to mean more to you. But, uh, but I did find it interesting that the top three matched, uh, Andy's 101 greatest songs. I went, when I saw that, I was like, how funny is that yeah. <laughs> to see the top three be the same thing? And, and he did his, uh, entry, you know, several years ago, I believe. Yeah. Back in 2013. Oh wow! Yeah, so yeah, so the, so the top three songs haven't changed apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did yeah. I did vote many many times just to make sure they matched. <laughs> You're one of those people. <laughs> gotcha. Pat, pad those votes in. Pad those votes. <laughs> How's those gold pants going, Andy? <laughs> They're a bit snug at the moment, but it's all good. Oh wow! <laughs> Visuals. I know, right? <laughs> Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs>